You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 425. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4G at the Wyndham Grand Pittsburgh downtown. Today's show is reported on the 16th of May, 2020. episode, United updates social distancing rules following a viral photo of a crowded cabin. British Airways pilots facing layoffs may wind up working for the RAF. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, homage to a pilot. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, Flight 425 is ready for pushback. Hello, thank you, Radio Roger Stern, Emmy Award-winning TV and radio report, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently a captain for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, which I like to call Acme Airlines. And I'm joined by my awesome co-hosts today from... Her lakeside home in the Carolinas, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to see you guys on a Saturday for a change. Yeah. Actually, we did a few of these before on Saturday, but it's, it's always nice to do it on a Saturday. Changes things up a little bit. And, you know, today is a perfect lake day here in the Carolinas, but rather be here with you guys. Well, you got a little lake time, didn't you? Uh, tomorrow. Okay. Well, thanks for coming. And from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, farmer, former, not a farmer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, Jeff. Hi there, Steph. Uh, You can tell that Steph's still working and not retired. She knows which day of the week it is. Yeah. No, I've just got my fancy um, calendar that I have to. <laughs> I haven't even changed the date on it. It's wrong. Yeah. It's For me, every day is the same now. Yeah. So, are you telling me, Steph, that you have not been out on the lake today? I have not. Oh, um, okay. We can get into it later, but I'll tell okay. you what I have been up to. Let me. Well, if you get into get it later, function. you'll get all wet, won't you? Well, I might. That is <laughs> the, the danger of, of the lake. Yes. It's full of it's full of water. Okay. Very good. Um, so let's, uh, oh, by the way, um, we have two of the hosts that aren't joining us today. We're hoping that Rick will. Uh, he ended up picking up some um, last minute flying and he might be able to join us uh, sometime during our show recording today. We're crossing our fingers. And Dana is out there, speaking of lakes, enjoying his cabin cruiser yacht on Lake Alatuna. So, Dana, hope you're having a great time. 
with your lovely wife, Julie. So with that, let's go on to the news. Stand by for news. Let's start with the first item in our folder. We're going to cover a lot of COVID-related stuff, but I don't want to dwell on it. So we're going to try to knock it out as quickly as we can because, you know, it's kind of negative, kind of a downer. So we'll just kind of touch upon some of these items here in the folder. Um, The first one, the impact of COVID-19 on U.S. commercial passenger airline fleets. And this is from the airlinereporter.com. And basically, this person uh, got a whole bunch of stats for the fleet evolution for various airlines. Uh, The first one starts with Southwest and then there's Delta airlines, American airlines, et cetera. And it kind of shows the uh, fleets that they were operating pre COVID-19 and post COVID-19. And of course that's changing day by day, but uh, it's an interesting article and interesting graphs. So we'll have that in the show notes for you guys to, yeah, they're, they're a little un, hard for me to fathom. I'm trying to work out what they're all about. But I, I, I tell you, the, the the amazing thing is, it's just the drop-off, uh, the total number of uh, reductions. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? It's like all, yeah, especially um, when you see it in graph uh, form. It's like across, 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 and then just, yeah, yeah, just and then boom. boom. Yeah. It's yeah. a, a death. But I, it's not I just, guess if you want to see which fleets are hurting the most, this is a very useful uh, tool. Well, it's not just one fleet. Unfortunately, you look at it, it's mm-hmm. pretty similar but across. Occasionally, there's a fleet there which is hanging on and in there. I noticed mm-hmm. the, some, uh, you know, the Frontier, the A320 Neos, that they hardly dropped at all. But, uh, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I, I guess if you're in that airline, it's, uh, it's useful to be able to find out how your airline is performing. It's mm-hmm. interesting um, that uh, it appears that at Southwest, the 737 fleet is doing okay. Mm, Do they yeah. have any other aircraft? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. You didn't have to point that, that out. Trick. That was <laughs> a other, trick question, wasn't it? <laughs> the only other one I'm looking at is Allegiant has uh-huh. a big drop off and then it climbs right back up to kind of halfway. Did you yeah, I was that? like, oh, never mind. Maybe we don't need to. Oh, cut wait, we'll, we'll just continue flying. It's, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, if you're interested in all, all that kind of data, data, whatever you want to say, uh, please check out this article in the show notes, ITSM. And moving on, speaking of fleets, um, big news from uh, Acme's sister airline, Delta, um, announced just a couple of days ago that they have made the decision. Of course, we all knew that they were retiring the uh, Mad Dog fleet, the MD-88s and MD-90s, and they were already in the midst of retiring that fleet or those fleets. Um, But they've just really accelerated them to the point where uh, this month will be the last month of uh, passenger operation of those things. But then they kind of, in, in a surprising uh, move, um, what was it, just day before yesterday, I believe, they said, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah, uh, we're going to also retire all 18 of our 777-200 fleet, uh, 777-200 LR and ERs, and that's all they fly. Um, so 
yeah, uh, that's going to cause a lot of a lot of downward movement um, for everybody else because that fleet tended to have the most senior of the pilots at that airline. So um, interesting things going on there, but they're trying to mm-hmm. get to a, uh, a size uh, to maximize efficiency in the future. So, oh, yeah, it's all about survival mode at the moment, isn't it? Yep, it is. But you know, you just gotta you gotta adapt to the situation that you're that you're presented with, and they are doing the. And I think they're one of the airlines that's really handling this the best out there. Uh, well, of course, Acme is doing the best of everybody. I think. Um, <laughs> I'm not too sure. <laughs> Nick disagrees. That's only fifty percent true. I think. <laughs> well. Well, that's what that's. I mean, so if you look at that graph, we were always at fifty percent, so it just stayed where it was. <laughs> All right. Well Item C. Coronavirus. Branson to sell galactic steak to prop up Virgin. And I've always wanted a galactic steak. I normally have um, a sirloin, uh, but I thought <laughs> a galactic steak, now that's got to be really good. How big would the steak have to be to prop up it a virgin? It would be humongous. To prop up a virgin, though? Virgins aren't that big. Oh, uh, Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sir Richard Branson is I selling us. I don't know if it's the best prop for a virgin. No. I don't know what that has to do with aviation at all, honestly. So should we just skip this one and move on? No. Um, <laughs> all right, very good. He's selling a stake in his, his space airline ah. to prop up his ground-based airline. Mind you, space airlines are ground-based when they start, aren't they? His yeah. uh, air-reliant air airline. <laughs> <laughs> What else can you tell us about this? Uh, it's it, he's looking to raise five hundred million uh, US dollars, oh. which seems a reasonable amount for something that hasn't actually carried a passenger yet. Mm. I suppose, uh, I suppose it really is this the, t- the technology uh, that they have and mm-hmm. all that proprietary stuff and all that work they've done. It must be worth something. Should be, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that might be uh, uh, an effective way to keep the uh, airline Virgin Atlantic running after this whole thing. Yeah, uh, unlike, you know, the big airlines, we aren't as bleeding quite as fast. But, you know, it's still draining away. Yes, and no matter how much you're bleeding, you still need that blood. Yep, in your galactic state. Yeah. All right, very well. Uh, D, Avianca. Moving over to uh, Italy. No, it's not Italy. Uh, nope, Avianca is South America, right? Um, Colum- uh, Colombia? Is that where they're based? Colombia? Um, uh, I think so. I could yeah. be wrong, but I think it does say that in the... Okay. Yeah. Bogota-based Avianca. Um, looks like uh, they have filed for bankruptcy on Sunday after failing to meet a bond payment deadline while it's pleased for coronavirus aid for uh, from Colombia's government has so far been unsuccessful. So I, I say Colombia because uh, if I say Colombia, it sounds like South Carolina state capital. <laughs> Easily confused. Yes. Uh, if it fails to come out of bankruptcy, Bogota-based Avianca would be one of the first major carriers worldwide to go under uh, go under as a result of the pandemic, which has crippled world travel. So that's not good. I'm not sure what the bankruptcy procedure and ramifications are for airlines in Latin America, but, uh, or South, South America. Um, but, um, hopefully they'll be able to secure 
some financing and be able to come out uh, lean and mean after the Rona is over. So, yeah, it's a shame to see such an old airline, uh, you know, well, it's been around a very long time struggling, mm -hmm. but uh, no, uh, it has been, uh, it, you know, it's been close to the margin, isn't it, for quite a while. So it's hardly surprising it's going to suffer right now. Yeah, yeah. I think they were already working on some restructuring and everything before. Yeah. I'm going to skip to F because I think it has more to do with everything we've been discussing than E, and we'll, we'll go to E after this one. Um, this was interesting, I thought, very um, clever. British Airways pilots could be seconded to the RAF for up to four years. Uh, this is from the dailymail.co.uk. BA pilots who face losing their jobs because of the coronavirus lockdown could be given temporary Royal Air Force roles. The pilots' union, BALPA, is in talks with the Air Force to send pilots into RAF roles for up to four years. BA and the RAF have had a working relationship for years where military pilots have joined the commercial airline. But the devastation that the coronavirus lockdown has caused, the travel industry, has reversed these roles. The RAF will select inv individuals based on suitability, including background, relevant experience, and qualifications. BAPLA said in a memo sent to BA pilots. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it, and that's not the only time that occurs in this article. So oh dear. let me have so fun with being it. A bit hasty on the keyboard, I think. <laughs> uh, and, that, you know, editing. Yeah. Spell check. Right. Well, spell check probably wouldn't have helped. Wouldn't catch it, but uh, editing would. Yeah. Paying attention. Mm -hmm. That might mm -hmm. help. Come on, Daily Mail. They have discussed secondments between 18 and 48 months, but any final plans depend on BA's willingness to welcome pilots back to the commercial airline after secondments are completed. BALPA has entered urgent negotiations with British Airways about its proposed job losses, and the company has yet to justify the scale of its planned cuts. We will fight to save as many of those jobs as we can, said BAPLA. <laughs> so, obviously, we have a couple of unions involved. Uh, Balpa yes, and Balpa. the sounds of it. <laughs> well, I hope actually they consider including other pilots because there are other uh, airlines that are also represented by uh, yeah. the British Airline Pilots Association. Uh, so I don't see why they should sort of hone in on British Airways other than the fact that British Airways pilots form the majority of the pilots that belong to uh, Balpa. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some ex-military guys there who uh, might be able to pick up uh, some fast jet jobs, but I'm pretty sure most of them will be uh, required flying um, heavies, which is more appropriate, really. Um, and uh, don't forget that the, um, the Royal Air Force has a number of uh, A330s. So any A330 qualified pilots, and there's bound to be some uh, from uh, Virgin Atlantic, who uh, might want to take that up, uh, will probably uh, be best qualified to go and have a go on those. I would imagine that uh, there are probably some EasyJet pilots that uh, might also. Yeah, A320, A330 conversion isn't isn't hard. Yeah. Um, no, it's. Uh, I think it's very good to see. Uh, sadly, it won't be a very great number. I wouldn't have. No, thought. probably not. There's a... a Another, I don't know if it was just part of this article or another one that I just put with it, uh, but uh, it talks about um, a BA pilot got a new job as a Tesco delivery driver. Um, a BA pilot out of work due to the Rona pandemic 
has started his new job as a delivery driver. His name is Peter Logan, was saluted for his temporary change of career as he ditched 747s. I don't think he ditched them. I think he was forced to do this for a Mercedes Sprinter to drop off food to Britons in coronavirus lockdown. BA has grounded all flights at Gatwick and dramatically cut its services at Heathrow, while pilots have been hit with a 50% pay cut for three months and told to take two weeks of unpaid leave in both April and May. There's a nice picture of him and his partner, Marianne Whiston. And this is when they were both uh, flying for Thomas Cook, which is an airline that uh, uh, stopped uh, service. La- was it last year? I think it was. Uh, last Not year the, or the uh, year before? I forget exactly when, but it was it was fairly recently. Fairly recent, yeah. Anyway, so there's a picture of him in the cockpit with his partner and then also a picture of him in his in his uh, truck or lorry or whatever you want to call it, deli- delivery truck. And uh, anyway, it, and the article goes on to talk about how the Rona has affected UK airlines, British Airways, EasyJet, Logan Air, Jet2, Virgin Atlantic, and Ryanair. So if you want to check it out, it'll be in the show notes. Absolutely. Item E. United updates social distancing policies after viral photo of a crowded fight flight <laughs> crowded fight crowded <laughs> farmers fl- and fights there might have been kinds one. Of strange things in this yeah this is from the Washington Post uh, for the past two weeks Vice or Weiss probably the way Weiss, pronounce yeah. it Ethan Weiss had been in New York the epicenter of the U.S. coronavirus outbreak volunteering at hospitals to help care for patients infected with the novel virus. But as Weiss tells it, he was about to face an even more daunting task this weekend, the plane trip back to San Francisco. Yeah, so uh, I'm guessing that most folks have seen this, at least in the United States, have seen this picture because it's been widely circulated at this point. Um, But anyway, his fears that he had uh, were confirmed when he and 25 other medical professionals found themselves on a jam-packed flight from Newark to San Francisco, despite previous assurance from United that social distancing measures would be in place. So this is actually someone that I follow on Twitter. Um, He's a big part of of med Twitter. and actually, if you're if you're at all interested, he kind of did a little mini blog about his time in New York and caring for uh, a lot of these really sick patients on uh, COVID units. It was very eye opening stuff. Um, so definitely go go read about that if, especially if you're in a part of the world where you have not been um, hard hit by the coronavirus, because it really does show just how how significant the impacts can be on on these patients. Um, but anyway, he, he uh, said that he actually got an email from United just a couple of days before the flight with reassurances that they had blocked every middle seat. So there'd be proper social distancing measures and then come to find out when they got on the flight that actually, nope, that was not the case. Uh, As you can see in the photo, the plane looks nearly full, at least from the picture of where he is. Uh, Might be a little bit more empty down the back. It's a little hard to tell, but certainly not uh, empty middle seats. Yes. So uh, a lot of airlines here in the U S at least uh, are, are talking about the fact that they're, you know, employing procedures for social distancing. But I think that um, our sister airline Delta is actually doing it, um, blocking seats, et cetera. Um, And I know a person that flies regional air, uh, he's a regional jet pilot and he flies for three of the major U S legacy airlines here in, in the U S. And he said that 
Delta is the only one that's really uh, doing cleaning, like between flights, really taking it seriously. So that was good to hear because I have friends over there and uh, I think they're a pretty good carrier. Well, they announced guess- uh, a new regime, didn't they? A new standard of uh, cleanliness on board. And it sounds mm-hmm. like they're um, actually fulfilling that, which is brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to be saying that you're going to be doing something and then not making good on that promise. Although right. United did uh, apparently, I think he's re- they've replied to Dr. Weiss and, and said that they were going to adjust their seat selection system so that folks don't yeah, have to Yeah, we said we were going to do that, but now we're actually going to do it. <laughs> yeah. That thing we said we were going to do? Okay, going forward. Uh, we'll yeah, now. we probably. Now, I have to say that on uh, Acme, and I think I think a gate agent did this because uh, I was we've been doing a lot of deadheading lately um, because of the wacky schedules, because of the pandemic. And so we have a way to go in and kind of choose our, you're given a seat and then you can go in after that and like change seats. And usually we move ourselves from economy to comfort plus, you know, that middle, that uh, transition area between economy and first class. And that tends to be the area where there are more seats available and there's more space between passengers and that kind of thing. And then uh, first class and uh, the airplanes that I've been deadheading on have 16 seats. So uh, basically two and two mm-hmm. uh, times four in mm-hmm. first class. And so I was on one of these deadheads a couple of weeks ago and I walked up to the thing and it was, oh, it moved you up to first class. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. So I'm expecting that I'm going to sit in my first class seat. I think it was uh, she or he assigned me for I'm in a one C, so that would be the aisle so seat on the mm-hmm. on the very first row on the right side, and I'm thinking, okay, nobody's going to be sitting next to me, right, because of social distancing, and no, this agent packed the entire first class, <laughs> so we're sitting like right next to each other. I'm thinking, uh, uh, I don't think this do is that. the way we're That's, supposed to do this, yeah, and so like, from, I appreciate this, but I might go back to where I can be. By myself. So what I do now, uh, I deadheaded yesterday up here to Pittsburgh. Uh, I went up and said, uh, don't upgrade me to first class. I don't know if it's available or not, but don't upgrade me. I'd like to stay in my seat that I picked for myself in economy comfort or whatever. And and uh, the, the gate agent said, okay. So anyway, I think I, I don't think they're doing that anymore. I don't think they're packing the entire first class mm-hmm. section. I think that was just one of those things that the agent thought he was doing a good thing, but right. Although uh, I guess theoretically you have a little bit more space in those seats just because eh, there's, yeah, they're not, six, the seats aren't packed as tightly together, but still <laughs> not a lot. No. I mean, anywhere you cut it, you're not getting your six feet or two meters of separation nope. in an airplane row. So. Nope. You're right. All right. Um, anything else to say about social distancing and wearing of masks on uh, airline airliners? Uh, I think we're going to talk about masks with the next one a little bit more, because actually there was a question from Captain Al, just a brief question, but let's move on and we'll get to it. Okay. Um, So this is a a, a very important uh, breaking news item here, uh, item G, Uh, major airlines to require face masks on all flights. And there's a picture, and I should probably share that so everybody that's uh, with us live in the chat room can see it. So see that? So... (laughs) It's got a it's got a mask and a hearing aid by the looks of it. Oh yeah, I see on the on the left ear. Yeah, a, a yeah, hearing it's a, trumpet. It's a very very, it's a very <laughs> big hearing aid. <laughs> so this uh, for your if you're listening to the audio only uh, and you're not looking at the show notes, 
This is a 787 Dreamliner, and it has a big, giant blue face mask on the on the nose cone. That's pretty funny like looking. Something that uh, the folks who created the movie Airplane would do. Yes. Yes. We're requiring all. <laughs> We're requiring just complying masks. with the rules. Yeah. That's all. Uh, I'm just a bit worried. It doesn't actually say remove before flight. <laughs> I so. hope they mm. think about that. <laughs> I mean, it's probably just going to blow off at some point. Sorry. Uh, so the question was, are, um, are airlines handing out masks to passengers who don't show up with their own mask? They are. At, at Acme, they are. I don't know that that's standard across all they airlines, are. but I know that the vast majority of airlines are requiring masks for all passengers. Right. The and there's right. a pretty good supply at uh, Acme for those who show up without the required mask. And from what I can tell, uh, based on riding in the back on my deadhead flights, uh, everybody is complying. So mm-hmm. that's a good they thing. They have the mask over their nose and mouth? Yeah, believe it or not. Some really? even over their ears. <laughs> Just I don't know wrap why. their whole head up in a yeah. scarf. Sure. So why not? You know, you can't be too careful. <laughs> Are they actually policing where they stick them, though? Or you, have you got to put them on your face? Well. You, and, and if you put them on your face, have you got to put, put them on your mouth and nose? Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> All right. Uh, and let's see, anything else? No. All right. Now let's get serious. This one is not a happy story, and but it's real, and it has nothing to do with coronavirus as far as we can tell. Uh, on May 8th, was it? Uh, this is from CBS Austin. Uh, anyway, sometime uh, during that week, the engine cowling, let's see, of a Southwest Airlines flight 1392 from Dallas shows visible damage after a person was struck and killed on the ABIA runway. What does that stand for? Austin. Um, oh, mm, I should know that. Yeah. Uh, what's the Berkstrom. name of the airport? Um, Berkstrom. Yeah. It used to be Berkstrom Air Force Base, actually. And then the. Uh, the Air Force uh, relinquished control, and now it's the uh, city airport, uh, Austin Bergstrom International Airline uh, Airport, uh, Thursday night. Um, a photo of the engine cowling uh, shows a vil- visible damage. The image provided to CBS Austin by a source familiar with the accident shows a sizable dent to the leading edge of the cowling on the left of the engine of the 737. The FAA said in a statement that the pilot of Southwest Airlines Flight 1392 reported seeing a person on the runway shortly after the plane touched down. Tower Southwest 1392, we believe there might be a person on the runway. Southwest 1392, where exactly do you see them at? Well, they, uh, they're behind us. They're, they're behind us now. Southwest 1392, uh, Roger. So you saw them just as you touched down. Hey, firm. 1392, Roger. Your discretion, taxi vehicle, Golf 2 to parking. Uh, 
A mysterious illness affecting oh, children. Oh, mysterious who have been illness. With COVID nineteen. Yeah, we don't want to hear about that, do we? Okay. No. No. <laughs> so <laughs> we have a number we'd like you to copy down. We didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't our fault. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't our no, fault. that was a, a okay number. Yeah, just, it was okay. We just need more information. In this case. <laughs> <laughs> Not hey, you really screwed up, and we need to talk to you. There was a lot of discussion about this on various forums out there and, you know, some, some people, and I, I think that there are people that are not pilots or uh, airline pilots that said, well, they should have seen that, you know, before they touch down or whatever. I'm thinking, yeah, we're coming in pretty fast and it's right around sunset in uh, Austin at uh, 815 in the evening. That is that the day. hardest time to see anything. It yeah, is. It's just, you get, the light comes in from that low angle and it just really obscures a lot of things that you might see otherwise and even if it was the middle of the day i don't know that you would have that they would have been able to see someone yeah it's not like another airplane on the runway it's a it's no. a human and you know those runways they're, i think that's 150 foot wide he, no yeah i mean a runway's a mile or two long uh and trying to spot something a mile uh in front of you when you're coming down and your eyes definitely aren't once you've cleared the runway as best you can, your eyes are looking for different cues when you're in the flare mm-hmm. and actually touching down, and you wouldn't necessarily be ready to spot something like that. No, and by the time you'd see something like that and make some kind of a reaction to try to avoid whatever it is that you're trying to avoid, uh, it's just too late. You know, your power is mm-hmm. probably back to idle, um, and you know, even if you tried to do a go-around at that point, you know, you'd be a couple thousand feet down the runway probably before you lift it off again. Yeah. So there was nothing they could do. Um, I've told this story before, but I remember I mentioned I had someone run across the runway in front of me when I was getting airborne out of Lagos. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was uh, – I didn't see him until I looked up from the 100-knot check uh, when we called the speed and looked up, and this guy was trotting across the runway. And, uh, you know, when you've got a big, heavy airplane, there's not a lot. You're a bit like an ocean liner. There's not a lot you can do to avoid someone. Uh, you can't take off into the grass <laughs> to try and get around him. You put mm-hmm. 300 people in the back at risk. So, uh, yeah. And if you try and stop, it takes a long time to stop one of those things, even, you know, with the fantastic brakes and reverses that we have. So there's not a lot you can do must be a very traumatic event to realize that you, you could tell in that uh, the communication there with the tower that these pilots knew that they had struck and most likely killed a human on the runway. Um, yeah, they're, interesting. They're, I've, I've got a few friends in the railway industry, and uh, if a driver um, – hit someone, you the, you know, a lot of suicides on the r- railways, sadly. Mm-hmm. I think they get uh, about six months off if they wish it. Uh, and I would think, I would hope that these pilots would be uh, treated very well after this, because even though you might try and brave it out, I, I suspect that event is going to, um, you know, sit in the back of your mind for a long time. Yeah, Absolutely. Anthony in the uh, Facebook chat room says that report said that they did try to avoid um, to Nick's point. Wouldn't that be even more dangerous? And I think, you know, the reports that he's talking about, I had seen that in some of the articles and I'm thinking that was just supposition or speculation really because of where 
the cowling um, was dented on the on the airplane, and it's possible mm-hmm. they may have tried to use a little bit of rudder or maybe even a little bit of right bank to try to you know swerve out of the way to the right to avoid hitting this thing. But there's very little you can do. Uh, you're going so fast. No, it's interesting. You know, you can tell that by their the when they call up there's a lot of uncertainty in their voice but i didn't i wasn't sure that they knew for certain that they had actually struck someone or a person um but i was thinking if you did you would feel that potentially even on yeah. a large airliner yeah yeah it would definitely be a big bang i think yeah. and i'm not talking about the sitcom hmm. oh, or the or the theory stuff. yeah yeah really tragic stuff so uh anyway all right. Well, I don't know what else to say about that. It's just a bad situation. It's it's uh, it's just bad that they had to experience that. Do we know where the bloke came from? I gather he wasn't an airport employee. He wasn't badged, uh, and they assume he came over the fence. Is that, that right? That is true. I saw something just yesterday that said that they had identified. They didn't release who the person was, but they did identify the person who was not in any way related with the airport or airlines or anything else. Uh, somehow. Okay. Breached the uh, security um, barrier and was just wandering on the runway. So, well, at least it's not a a, a lack of procedure or a lack of clearances mm-hmm. that uh, you know some airport worker who was put in a dangerous position. So, if someone came over the fence, there's not a right. lot you can do about that. Kind of like that uh, guy that climbed the fence in in Atlanta and and climbed aboard an Acme uh, uh, Mad Dog right wing. <laughs> As oh, attacked. yes, I remember just wearing his underwear, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So maybe uh, maybe he was related to that guy. And, I don't know. Okay. No. Probably not. Item I. Um, so we talk about bird strikes every now and then on the show. And this one happened at the Zaragoza Air Base in Spain. A Spanish Air Force Airbus A400M suffered a bird strike. And there are a couple of photos here. Let me share them with you. Uh, because uh, it made a big hole in this 400 A400M, didn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of damage there. Uh, Seems like quite the bird. A yeah. big, big You can see the aircraft's bird. intestines hanging out. Oh, perhaps that's the bird. I don't know. It might be the, yeah, it could be either, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, that, I believe, is the area of the fairing of the main landing gear on I think it's the right side, and um, it's uh, you know so forward of the main landing gear. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Let's see here. Yes, there we go. There's another shot of the uh, where they hit that big bird. It must have been a very large bird, as you say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a monster. Yeah. I'm just curious to know what that panel is with the funny hatch in. Um, oh, on the side. Yeah, what do you reckon that is? That's where they throw out the pigeons, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it look like, let's see, it looks like a cat door uh, that you'd have in your house. Yeah, for your your pet to. I mean, it really oh, yeah. does. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it is. In fact, this this bird was probably trying to get in the the trap door, <laughs> and it made a mistake. We have solved the mystery. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. It was a pet parrot. <laughs> Anyway, now it's a late parrot. <laughs> not, yeah, very late. Not really much else to say about about that. It's just that uh, that was a uh, a very a very large hole in the side of a very large airplane, and it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
that's all we have in today's news segment. However, we would, this is a special show and, uh, Captain Nick has prepared a special plain tale for the occasion. And, uh, we're going to go ahead and play that now before we do our getting to know us segment. So if you're all ready, let's okay. go ahead and do that. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, a homage to a pilot. Something is happening in my life that, despite its depth and intensity, happens to almost everyone. The difference for me is that it's occurring so far away that I can't be part of it, in spite of its importance to me. Many of us all around the world are going through something similar. It's partly a function of travel restrictions brought on by a health crisis that has forced its way into our lives like an unwelcome drunk at a wedding, a belligerent foe who, despite our fury, we're unable to attack. An awful distraction when we need calm and understanding plus a steady hand, but all we see around us is fury, and frustration. I'm losing something that has been part of my life since conception, an overriding dominant force that has taught and controlled, but nurtured and comforted as well. There is nothing in my life that could possibly replace it, and when it's gone, I will have lost something so unique and precious to me that it will leave a huge gap in my life, a hole in my heart that will never heal. While I write, impotent to change what is happening, the life force of a man who lies thousands of miles away is slipping from his grasp, a grasp that has been firm and sure for all of his life until now. He grew up on the white sand beaches of Western Australia, not as some might think, a boy from privilege, but one whose grandfather was a carpenter and father a postal worker. As our youngsters are enamoured with celebrities on YouTube a hundred years ago, the advances of science and technology inspired the young people of the world. So it was that he took time from the fun he was having at the Cottesloe Lifesaving Club to go gliding in a flimsy machine that they built themselves. My first step towards actually getting airborne was to join the local gliding club. And there we, uh, we built our own gliders and risked our lives by shock cord launching them into the air and hoping somehow to manhandle um, these things back onto the ground. This fascination with aviation would take him to an engineering apprenticeship, and when war broke out, he found himself unable to volunteer. He was trapped in a protected occupation. Eventually freed, he was able to follow a dream that would take him into the sky and into danger. He became part of a generation of pilots who took on responsibility well before they were ready, but who rose to the challenge and surpassed it. 
Anxious to get into the fight, he left the beautiful shores of Australia to join the Royal Air Force chaps who were standing alone against the might of Hitler. Rather than wait for an opportunity to become a glamorous fighter pilot, he chose his first chance to get into the fight on the Sunderland flying boats of No. 10 Squadron, Royal Australian Air Force, based at Plymouth in the west of England. The aircraft that he flew was well-armed and needed a crew of 11. And we had uh, uh, an enormous amount of armament. The, um, the Germans used to refer to us as... Uh, the flying porcupine, because we had so many guns. Above the convoys of merchantmen zigzagging their way across the Atlantic, he found the patrols an enormous source of frustration. Leaving at last light, they would return to see the devastation and ruin that Nazi wolf packs of submarines had dealt while they were away. Unable to land in rough water, they were forced to watch men drown in front of their eyes. There were 156,000 merchant navy or merchant navy guys operating on those convoys, of which 33,000 lost their lives. If you can imagine a chaos at night in a convoy that was being attacked by up to 20 U-boats. Then you, you had some vague idea of the possibility of, of these guys surviving, which was almost nil. Water temperatures were so low that they, uh, they wouldn't last long in the water. There were certainly no POW camps. Their work was long and often disheartening, but eventually, as technology equipped them to fight on their own terms, they began to see that their thousands of hours in the air was having an effect. We would drop our torpedo charges ahead of the swirl that the, uh, the U-boat had left, hoping that uh, we might catch it before it, became, it got too deep. He flew long hours for day after day, as the requirements needed to complete a tour of duty were very difficult to achieve. It was a long, long tour. Uh, we had to mark up 1,000 hours of operational flying before we could finish a tour, or we had to have 18 months of continual operations before. So it was 18 months or 1,000 hours. Eventually, though, as the cheers of VE Day, Victory Europe, rang out around Plymouth Hoe, a future could be considered. It started back home with the Douglas DC-2 out of Perth, Western Australia. A rough and basic aircraft, but one that could teach a lot to a man willing to learn. After several frustrating years, his career continued back in England with the Vickers Viking from Blackbush Airport. This poorly equipped aircraft, and barely able to warrant the description of an airliner, took his passengers thousands of miles across the empty, scorched expanse of the African deserts and through fertile plains all the way from London to Harare. 
No global positioning system, no up-to-the-minute weather forecasts, just a map and compass. We used to take this little twin-engine aeroplane right down into darkest Africa or anywhere else we could find work to do. And eventually the company um, started up a service to uh, Nairobi in Africa and uh, also down into that which was Salisbury. We used to take seven days on a round trip to Nairobi and nine days on a round trip to Salisbury, which is now Harare. So it was uh, daylight flying only because there were no order, uh, there were no navades at all in that part of the world. The adventures of those early airline pilots were many, but the industry moved apace. Before too long, the Bristol Britannia was his willing steed, with its long, gleaming fuselage and four mighty Bristol Proteus turboprop engines that had a propensity for flaming out. Quite often, in, you'd be in the icing level in bad weather, and the uh, engines would literally flame out because of icing problems. Uh, this wasn't a great worry to uh, Bristol's because they had they'd put a, a glow plug inside the engine that immediately relit it. So they 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 did their best to convince captains that it was just simply a bump, not not to worry about it. It wasn't going to affect the performance of the aeroplane. It had just simply relight. But of course, as far as the passengers were concerned, you can imagine how they felt if they were sitting there looking out the window at night and suddenly a big flame would lick down the side of the fuselages <laughs> as this engine relit itself. <laughs> With the arrival of the jet age came the chance to captain one of the world's most beautiful airliners, the Vickers VC-10. To be one of the first captains to fly this wonderful aircraft meant that training was conducted on the prototypes out of the little aerodrome attached to the factory at Wisley. One of the most advanced airliners in the world at the time, it was a delight to fly. It turned out that the VC-10 was one of the most sophisticated aircraft to be produced at that time, and it was overpowered. So you couldn't imagine a more satisfactory aeroplane from a pilot's point of view. Uh, if you've got an overpowered aeroplane, <laughs> you, you feel a lot happier. It, it was really quite spacious as well, and it was capable of flying beyond the speed of sound if you'd like to push it that far, and we were told strictly not to do so. So we used to fly it just below the speed of sound, and uh, they were perhaps in the days before everybody had to fly at the same speed, for instance, across the Atlantic. A takeover by another company led to a move on to a Boeing aircraft, the 707, which didn't prove to be particularly popular amongst the pilots who had left the VC-10. 707s. Now, the 707 was going to replace the VC-10A because it was... Uh, equipped with fan jets and not straight through jets therefore it was much more economical and also it had greater capacity 
So therefore, it could bring the company back into, into profitability. Well, after the, uh, the enjoyment of flying the VC-10, the 707 was a, a different kettle of fish. We used to call it uh, a very nice piece of agricultural equipment. He left the country to work in Q8, and after a while, as the 707 fleet manager, he fulfilled his dream to fly one of the most wonderful airliners of his era, the Boeing 747, an aircraft that he loved. Eventually, I did end up in, with Seattle, in Seattle, uh, doing the conversion onto the 747. And so I, <clears throat> I therefore felt that my career was uh, just about complete by flying the, one of the smallest to the biggest available at, at that time. But it was a beautiful aeroplane, there's no doubt about it. And of course, as far as Kuwait was concerned, uh, with so much money available, they had everything on the aeroplane that Boeing could possibly think of. So it made it, from our point of view, a really deluxe aircraft to fly. Fuel in Kuwait was so cheap. I mean, you could fill your tank, and they all had big, big American motor cars. You could fill your tank for $4 American. Uh, you can imagine how cheap it was to put fuel into an aeroplane. So we used to, we used to um, tanker fuel around, <laughs> and we always, particularly out of Kuwait, we always had uh, full tanks. Arriving over London one early morning, uh, the air, the airfield was uh, was fog bound, and there were aircraft in holding patterns. So London obviously wanted to um, get people in the stack in the right position as far as the um, amount of fuel they had. They called up each aircraft in turn and asked them what their endurance was. And when it came to my turn, I couldn't resist saying, uh, this is Kuwaiti uh, 543, our endurance is most of the day. <laughs> a training captain for many years, he would occasionally pass on a little snippet of advice. He once asked me what the first action should be following the warning of an engine fire. I came back with a list of possible actions like pull the throttle back, pull the fire handle, etc. No, he laughed, you sit back and light a cigarette. It was his way of telling me that following that rush of adrenaline you should slow things down a little so as not to make a fatal mistake. I remember asking him if losing an engine on the VC-10 was a problem. Or if you wished, you could just push the other three up. <laughs> now, that, that, that's quite an aeroplane when you can do that with them. In retirement, he moved back to Australia to settle in Perth. But at 60, he still felt like a young man. With Carol, his wife, they both wondered what they could still achieve with their life. So they turned their jet-setting lifestyle into something practical. Carol had trained as a cordon bleu chef in Paris, and they met when they were both flying for the same airline. 
They had visited some of the world's most wonderful restaurants together and accrued a lot of knowledge about fine dining. So when a historic restaurant in an up-and-coming wine-growing area came onto the market, they sold everything they owned to scrape together the asking price. It was a big gamble. They were in the countryside of Australia, something of a backwater, surrounded by forests and farms, but they wanted to bring the delights of modern French cookery, nouvelle cuisine, and fine wines to Australians who were more used to big slabs of steak and a beer. They struggled. From a restaurant that used to sell $10 meals to the local Rotary Club, they had to alter the expectations of their clientele. Hell, they needed an entirely new clientele. Slowly they modernised the kitchens and altered the wonderful old building. The big house had been the home of an enormously wealthy timber baron who harvested the beautiful curry wood of the area and shipped it around the empire to become the sleepers of the new Indian railways and would even pave the streets of London. The house was exquisitely redecorated with antique French furniture and the restaurant became a showplace for the wonderful New World wines being grown in the vineyards that were fast appearing all around. Six days a week, eleven months a year they worked until he passed his two score years and ten and on. By then they had been recognised as somewhere special and fashionable to go, despite the four-hour drive from Perth. They won accolades and awards, but finally it was time to sell and move on, this time to an avocado farm. After building their own house, a wonderful creation on a ridge overlooking a valley which led to the ocean, they began to relax. By now I was the captain of my own airliner, and my proudest moment was to fly this wonderful couple from Hong Kong to London. A man who had let me grow up on the jump seat of his aircraft, I was now able to return the favour. They finally retired and settled into a leafy suburb of Perth, near the river, where Carol was able to return to her education at the University of Western Australia, gaining her degree, master's and a doctorate, and finally teaching there. He found the Dalkeith and Nedlands Bowling Club more to his liking, and it was in those quiet years that he found a new challenge, and until the day of his passing he fought first throat cancer and then skin cancer, probably from the damage done in his young days as a lifesaver. He attributed his continued good looks to the many melanomas he had removed, which, he said, was like having an annual facelift. This wonderful man was honoured by being awarded a fellowship of the Royal Aeronautical Society in recognition of a lifetime of aviation achievement, and the presentation of the Légion d'honneur, with the grateful thanks of the French nation. When the world remembered the anniversary of the Battle of Atlantic, he came to Britain to represent those of the Royal Australian Air Force who did so much to finally banish the U-boats from the Atlantic Ocean. In the few days it's taken me to create this tale, it's turned from a homage to an obituary, as this man has finally left me. He was 97 years old, but I remember him as a tall, 
a very tall, slim man in his prime. His thinning hair did nothing to disguise his good looks, and he always had that strong swimmer's build that he formed as a young man. Calm and even-handed, well-spoken and erudite, he has been a guiding light in my life, a beacon that led me into the world of aviation and steered me unerringly through my flying life more accurately than any gauge or needle on the instrument panel. I can no longer laugh again at his oft-repeated jokes, sit by his side to watch an old black-and-white movie, or reminisce over a beer. How I wish I could have that time again, for that man was my father. I'd like to propose a toast to an amazing man who lived an amazing life and who produced an amazing son. <laughs> Three amazing sons. But well, thank you very much. I was going to say, what was, it, what was his name? Mark? Mark is the middle <laughs> one. <laughs> and Chris is the old one. I'm yes, the three amazing sons. But I mean, one that, that, that followed in his footsteps admirably. Ah, yeah, Cheers. Only one of Cheers them. to Captain Cheers. Andy Anderson. Yes, to Andy. Definitely. Rest well, death. Wow. I mean, talking about a full life, that's just, and, and to, to get that kind of honor from, from your son is uh, really, really nice. Thank you for doing that, Nick. Uh, no, I felt I sort of had to. It was yeah. just something inside me. Well, why don't we do have uh, some response, uh, a lot of it in our live chat room. Um, and we also have received, we received just a little bit ago, a, uh, a video uh, response. And so would you like to see that from Tom? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Okay, here we go. Hello, AVG crew. This is Tom from Columbia, Missouri, and I am here in my control room at the TV station where I work. And it's early on a Saturday morning and I'm preparing for our early morning newscasts, which uh, usually come in a couple hours before we go on the air, uh, to get ready for those. And while I'm preparing, I'll listen to a podcast or uh, have something on the television. Uh, But this morning, I've been listening to Captain Nick's Plain Tales uh, when he interviewed his father. And Captain Nick, when I heard yesterday that your dad passed away, um, man, it's just, it was hard to hear that. I'm really sorry for your loss. But this morning, I've been listening to your interviews with him that you. that you shared with us on your Plain Tales episodes. And you'll see one of them behind me here on the screen. I've been, uh, that's from your first series from May of 2016. And uh, man, it's so great to listen to him and his love of aviation and all the stories that he shared. And uh, it's so great that you shared that with us through the APG. And it's just another reason why APG is Uh, such a great community. So, uh, Captain Nick, even though I obviously never met your dad, I didn't know your father, I felt like when I found out he passed away, I felt like that a piece of our community is now missing. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing him with us 
And um, uh, I just wanted to let you know that it, uh, these plane tails are really, they're really touching me this morning. And I just wanted you to know that. So thanks again. Sorry for your loss. My family's prayers and thoughts are with you for sure. And uh, hopefully somewhere down the road, we'll cross paths again. See you later. Wasn't that nice? Thank you, Tom. Absolutely lovely. That's very kind of you, Tom. Uh, that's a really nice thing to say. Cheers. I think he touched on something that we all kind of feel because he shared all those interviews with us, you know, a couple of years ago, and we kind of got to know him through that, um, you know, and certainly having talked to you and, and heard stories of, you know, growing up and his influence on your life. Um, yeah, definitely a loss for all of us. So. Oh, there's no doubt I wouldn't be the man I am without uh, without me, having had him as a father. So I consider myself very lucky. I'm going to miss him. That's for sure. Even though, uh, you know, we were separated by half the continent, half the world. Um, you know, when we got together, it was, you know, like we had only seen each other last day, you know, even though a couple of years might have been separated. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we got on very well, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a shame, but yeah, I I wish, I wish I'd had a chance to meet him in person. Um, but I do, I feel like I did Mm -hmm. based on the the wonderful plain tales that you, um, interviews that you did of him. Yeah. I'm so, uh, glad I did that now because, uh, you know, I've got something to treasure forever. Exactly. So life well lived. Yeah. I mean, 97, that's no, uh, wow. No small feet. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> no small feet. Almost 98. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. wow. Almost a century of life. Cheers. Cheers. Hmm. All right. Wow. Thank you. All right. Let me put this new screen that Nick prepared for. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. And here we go. Let me play this. Some very flattering photos. Those reprobates. <laughs> I love that one of stuff with the, with with the, the, the syringe. Meal. Yeah, <laughs> you have an evil look, don't you? Yeah, I think I was threatening to use it on one of you for something. <laughs> and thank you for choosing that wonderful picture of me. Nick, yeah, your picture front and center there. Nonverbal communication. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it away, Liz. <laughs> Thanks. And nice, nice picture of the Mad Dog cockpit there, though. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, getting to know us. And yeah, stuff looks a lot better in my hat than I do. For sure. <laughs> Except it doesn't fit my head at all. Shh, don't tell everybody. Yeah. Giant. <laughs> <laughs> I have a small okay. head. It's okay. Um, so, um, since we don't really do seniority here at all anymore, <laughs> I think that we're going to uh, start with uh, Nick. <laughs> How have you been doing, sir? Okay, well, it's obviously it's been a very eventful week. Yes, uh, you know, was it Tuesday uh, you said uh, when your father passed? That's right. Yeah, it was. Um, it's a bit complicated because, of course, uh, there's uh, my brother is eight hours uh, one direction, and uh, Carol uh, Pop's wife uh, eight hours in the other direction. But it, it, yeah, it was Tuesday. So everyone keeps telling me when it happened, and I'm going, uh, was that? Your time, my time. Anyway, yes, Tuesday. So um, we knew he was in a bad way um, because he'd had uh, quite a serious fall at home. And, um, you know, he, he, he was definitely uh, not in the best of health. Uh, and it, it doesn't take much, I think, when you're in 
that kind of vulnerable vulnerable situation to push your body just a little hard, and that's kind of what happened. And uh, they moved him into hospital, and uh, he just quietly, um, you know, uh, his organs gave way, and uh, that was going to be the end of it. So, you know, we've all been sitting waiting for news, and um, one of the terrible things is that uh, his wife, Carol, would have been there on her own because none of us could have got to be there beside her and help her and also, of course, say goodbye to uh, Pop. So um, we're very lucky. Uh, my eldest uh, brother's uh, daughter, Elise, who also has appeared on a plain tale, uh, the, the latest uh, generation of Captain Andersons. She now is a captain in her own right, flying for a, a charter outfit out of Western Australia. Um, she was able to get time off to go and uh, comfort Carol and be there with Andy as well. So that was marvellous for all of us to know that uh, Carol wasn't able to do this on her own. But um, uh, when it was all over, um, Andy had decided he was going to give his body or donate his body to the university. Uh, and uh, uh, that was his greatest wish, so that was going to happen, except, of course, it couldn't. So because of the virus they weren't accepting uh anything like that so uh he was cremated and uh and that's that we are hoping to get together in the uh next year i suspect it'll be next year we don't know exactly when before we can all get ourselves organized and get there but we're going to have a a lovely uh, memorial awake a a celebration of his life uh, in the, we hope, the Cottesloe Life Saving Club, which is right down on the beach where he grew up as a young man. And uh, he was a member of that club, one of the almost one of the founder members. And uh, they got him on their honor board there. And uh, they said they would be delighted to uh, have us there. And uh, we, <laughs> Brent Grapes, the lovely uh, Brent Grapes, who uh, is one of our listeners and is the principal uh, trumpet of the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra, uh, said he would like to come to the funeral. We're not going to have a funeral, so hopefully I can persuade him to come to this celebration and he'd like to play the last post, which I think is going to be an absolute tearjerker. That'll oh have everyone going... <laughs> If uh, my brother's very good at doing a sort of a life story uh, in, in photographs, we've all contributed dozens of photographs. So hopefully we'll have that. And I, I'm sure it'll be a fabulous event. So uh, that's going to happen. Um, other than that, and the dreadful feeling of frustration of not being able to get away and go and be there, um, I haven't been able to do very much. Obviously, I wrote a plain tale. So... <laughs> That kept me busy. Wow. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, Steph? Yeah, so uh, just uh, not a lot going on here, um, which is, I guess, good news sometimes, especially considering the current environment of things. Um, where I am, I think I've mentioned this several times, we haven't been overly impacted by um COVID-19 coronavirus. So things are slowly kind of reopening, um, trying to do my part to make sure that I'm not one of those 
rushing back out and doing all the things without any precautions, because I don't think that is appropriate by any means. But certainly we haven't seen a lot of numbers of cases or a lot of numbers of fatalities, fortunately. So, um, you know, I think their phased reopening is is appropriate. So we're starting to see things kind of come to life around town. Uh, restaurants are allowed to have uh, people um, uh, eating on patios and things like that with appropriate spacing. So it's nice to see people out and about in, in the community again. And, you know, it's nice too as the weather gets, gets nicer. I was mentioning at the top of the show that it's a gorgeous day here. It's going to be a gorgeous day tomorrow, kind of a carbon copy of today very warm. Um, and I've kind of been waiting for a day to switch out the uh, top on my Jeep. Um, a nice warm day because it's a lot easier to get that soft top stretched across when it's warm outside. (laughs) makes it much more pliable. I've tried to do it when it's not so warm out and it doesn't go very well. I need a lot more strength to be able to, to do that. So, um, kind of stretched it all out today and let it heat up in the sun a little bit and, and got my hands dirty and, you know, put that back together. It's amazing how much dust everything collects sitting on a shelf for a year. <laughs> and actually, I don't even think I put the soft top on the Jeep last year. Uh, so it might have been two years that it, or two winters that it sat there. You've uh, had that um, thing that long? Yeah. Wow. Since 2018. Time flies. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is it a traditional material, like heavy canvas? Or yeah, it's is a it heavy com- canvas. It's an aftermarket one, so it's not the original uh, manufacturer's Um top but it's it's a common aftermarket one um, so it's not like mine where you just press a button and then it goes, <laughs> not really <laughs> so you have the airbus of cars <laughs> this took me the better part of it you know and because first they have to you know, take the hard top off so they have to remove all the little screws and things and then i have to you know back the car just into the right place in the garage to line everything up so that i can put the the hoist on it um and i you know, was just by myself today so it takes me a little bit longer to do all of that because I don't have someone else to say, hey, hold this up while I feed the little um, uh, piece of nylon through that, that screws under the top that'll hoist it up on you know, closer to the ceiling. Um, but it's, it's manageable. It took me probably two and a half hours, three hours to do all that. It's Hard the American way of doing things, Nick. No bush and p- button pushing here. <laughs> no, no, pushing. no 10 second European no. ways of doing <laughs> no. things. No. Okay. It's very complicated. How many and hours manual. was it? <laughs> About three. <laughs> but now that the soft top is on it, that's a much easier. You just roll that back. And back on. Oh, that's yeah, very, very cool. nice. So tomorrow will be the lake day. I'm kind of giving it a day for the, the water to maybe heat up on the surface a little bit too, because the last time I tried to get in the lake two weeks ago when we had a very nice warm day, the water actually was not very warm. Um, probably upper sixties Fahrenheit, a little, a little chilly side. Um, hoping it's going to be a little bit warmer tomorrow. Uh, and last weekend, didn't do a whole lot. It was kind of on the cooler side again, and I just did a whole bunch of running around town, like 18 miles. Yeah, literally wow. running literally. around town. When I say <laughs> I'm running around town, it's in my car. <laughs> no, no, like on, on foot. Uh, okay. yeah. so maybe some maybe some flying next weekend. I felt like this weekend I just needed a weekend to kind of reset and mm-hmm. get some stuff done around the house. Be a little lazy. Oh, and I did want to mention, speaking of being lazy, doing things that I don't normally do, um, don't often have a lot of time for leisure reading, but I mentioned Pilot Pip sent a book to me. He had mentioned this a couple times. Uh, it was one of his favorites. It's called This Is Going to Hurt, um, The Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor, actually about a, a British doctor and his um, his memoirs of being a, a low on the total pole doctor and all the stuff that they have to go through. And he kind of did it in diary form and then put it all together. It's, it's funny and poignant, and um, hopefully I'll be able to actually finish it this weekend. And, and so the title you, is? I appreciate it. 
this is going to hurt? It says, this is going to hurt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not sure who. <laughs> um, That's a good title. Yeah, very, very good. So it was a complete surprise. I just, I was like, oh, I've received something from the UK. Ah, very nice. I what this is. So thank you. Very nice. Okay, for me, uh, not a lot. I've just been cowering in place uh, in my uh, bunker in the northern Atlanta suburbs, but I did uh, pick so up. So you weren't taking up arms and storming the state capitol? No, because we don't have to, because Georgia was one of the first states to start opening up for business. So, uh, oh, and things are going well for us. Good for uh, you guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago when I got my hair cut and, uh, Things are almost back to normal Still here. Still waiting on my eyebrow lady to be able to see customers again. Me too. Yeah. Um, oh. I probably could use an eyebrow lady. <laughs> it's your mustache lady. You need to probably, she's, in a, she's, in a, she's in a neighboring state that has not opened up that type of stuff yet. Uh, so I have well. to wait a little bit longer. That's all right. So I'm thinking to myself, uh, it'd be kind of nice to uh, go out and fly. Uh, I just don't like sitting around not doing anything. So I looked at the stuff in the open time, and I saw this trip that I'm on right now, which is one deadhead leg on Friday. I'm off all day today, and then I fly one leg back to Atlanta tomorrow. And I'm thinking, I can use this, and I can knock out my reserve uh, – not reserve, my uh, recovery flying obligation for the 1st of June. And that way, that will give me a little bit more of an edge to actually get this trip. So I'm thinking, yeah, I could use the extra time as well. So I bid for it, was awarded the trip, and then I realized that basically the way the rules work with all this recovery flying stuff, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think I'm going to get paid for this trip. <laughs> so I basically am doing it for free, um, but that's okay because it's nice uh, being away from uh, the house and out and about, uh, although things are pretty quiet here in Pittsburgh, especially at this hotel. But uh, yeah, so I get to fly Probably the third to the last ride on the uh, on the Mad Dog. I have a couple of mm -hmm. uh, trips. Um, let's see, Monday morning I'm supposed to go. Well, Monday midday, go fly up to Philadelphia and back. And then they finally dropped everything that had anything to do with Grand Rapids for the rest of that trip. So I fly on Monday. Maybe I'll be able to pick up something for the rest of the week uh, next week. And then the same thing for the following week. Although they still have all the grand rapid stuff on there, even though that's not going to happen since we're not flying from Atlanta to grand rapids, Michigan. So anyway, that's uh, the flying thing. And uh, we I was did going to ask you, that... Jeff, uh, what are you doing for food up there? Are you finding fresh? Oh yeah. Things or... are open here. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, even in Pennsylvania, um, they, they do have still, some strict rules, but there are places that um, are are open for business and takeout, mostly takeout or delivery. And okay. so, yeah, uh, I'm not having a difficult time at all finding – because I'm downtown Pittsburgh. Last time I was in Pittsburgh, I was out near the airport, and there was absolutely nothing, nothing near the hotel. Uh, it was kind of very close to where we stayed uh, one, three years ago uh, for Wings Over Pittsburgh. And uh, there, there's absolutely nothing. Even the hotel didn't have food. So uh, this was a this is a different situation down here in the downtown Pittsburgh area. So um, not bad at all. Uh, I was able to find a place that sold beer. So I, I have my. This is made in Cincinnati. It's uh, called Rheingeist um, Truth IPA. It's really, really good. And so I bought a six pack of that yesterday, and found a place that has. Um, Amazing pizza. So 
bought a large pizza and I've been feasting off that the last couple of days. So luckily we have a refrigerator. I was going to say, is there a refrigerator? It's just sitting a refrigerator and a microwave. Pizza. Yeah. So Ooh. yeah, good. Fancy. So yeah, not, uh, not hurting at all here. Um, let's see. We do have uh, something that was sent in, you know, Pip pilot, Pip speaking of, um, he had mentioned the BBC radio sitcom, uh, cabin pressure. And Chris Marsh sent this in. I says, I thought you might want to uh, circulate this news to those you know in the UK, including Nick, of course. And it might be worth doing so straight away as it relates to a series starting tomorrow. The BBC's radio sitcom series Cabin Pressure is being rebroadcast on BBC Radio 4 each Sunday starting at 19.15 or 7.15 for regular people, uh, p.m., on May 17th. <laughs> Regular people. Yeah. To quote from Radio 17, Times. 17, 15 p.m. Well, it can't be a.m., can it? Um, 19.15. No, I said 7.15. Oh, okay. Sorry. So 19.15 or, for regular people listening now, 7.15 p.m. Oh, very good. Thank you. On May 17th. To quote from the radio from Radio Times, it is about, quote, the pilots of a tiny charter airline for whom no job is too small. But many are too difficult. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> that sounds perfect. And I think um, there was some discussion about this earlier today on the social meds. Um, it, it sounds like it might be available on Audible or other places. Kind of. It's available on all the places you can get podcasts. Perfect. And it's called. Um, well, somebody, and I don't think this is legal, actually, but it's bootlegged. Uh, it's still there, kind of. and I actually uh, uh, downloaded it myself and put it on my favorite uh, podcasting um, app called uh, Overcast, but it's called Cumberbin's Treasure. Uh, so that's C-U-M-B-E-R-B-I-N apostrophe S treasure, Cumberbin's Treasure. And there are all the, all the uh, episodes on Cumberbin's Treasure, if you want to check that out. And it's all on, it's on iTunes. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on, uh, I think I got this on podcasts.com. So if you want to have that on your phone, whatever, check it out. Thank you, Chris. Chris Marsh. And I just actually, when I was prepping for the show this afternoon, I listened to the first episode and it's very funny. I think it's called Mm, Abadabi. Very clever. They all go in alphabetical order by town. Yes. (laughs) I like it already. All right. So there you go. Thank you, Chris, for uh, letting us know. If, you, uh, if you're if you out there listening to the show and you don't have a smartphone and you only have a television, tune in to BBC Radio 4. Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. I guess that would be a radio. <laughs> it's not TV. Radio, BBC Radio 4. What channel is that, uh, Nick? What Where is uh, that on the radio frequency? Radio 4. 4? Four? 4. You got a 4 on your yeah. radio? We have Radio 1, Radio 2. But but and how do you find is, it on the radio? Who does that anymore? You just... Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. It's not like 101.7? Or, so is it really uh, on the radio? Or is it on TV? something. Uh, I'll look it up and come back to you. Okay. So it is actually on the radio. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Well, everybody that lives there probably already long, knows that. Long wave and FM. Okay. Sweet. All right. Let's... Uh, that's all I have, really. Uh, not a lot going on for me either. Probably not a lot for anybody these days. So, with that, 
the frequency is uh, 92 to 95 FM, 103 to 105 FM as well. But it also comes out on uh, Longwave, I'm pretty sure. Ah, excellent. It's time now for the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. It is now time to talk about these wonderful people who support the show. You'll notice we don't have any commercials on this show because we are user listener supported and since the last episode a couple folks have used the coffee fund classic method to contribute to the show financially and those people are jordan decker george leslie mazus karim michael quack and noel bach halloween or halloween not sure noel let us know if we uh, got that right uh, they use the Coffee Fund Classic method for contributing to the show. And we also have a new patron uh, via patreon.com. And he is an assistant senior executive producer. So it's like the almost the top tier of the uh, patrons. And his name is Ilyas Kolombalwala. I know I butchered that. Sorry. Uh, I I yeah Y A S Eos maybe. What do you think, uh, Steph? Yay! Nay. Spell it again. I I Y A S Eos. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, um, he is a new patron at the uh, ten dollars or more per episode level. And as I mentioned, right now we're not charging via Patreon uh, this month, but perhaps we'll get back to regular charging contributions, that kind of thing. Uh, in June. So stay tuned for that. So that is it for the coffee fund. Thank you very much. All of you who contribute and have contributed in the past. And uh, if you want to join that great group of folks, you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Captain incoming message. Ah, see, I thought you were going to Steph. here. We got to put you right I- here. Yeah, okay. I was like, what oh, happened look, there? I'm making a mustache on your face <laughs> with my finger. <laughs> oh, wait. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. Uh, picking Stephanie's eh. nose. <laughs> my, my camera is mirrored and it's too difficult to I know, out it's way. like I always go the wrong way. <laughs> that's uh, thanks to Captain Nick. Uh, that's a, there we um, go. If you're watching the, uh, if you're listening to the audio podcast, you, you should check out the video podcast every occasion, uh, occasionally uh, to see this fun stuff. All right, so let me move that out of the way. And let's go to the feedback folder and start with uh, item. Well, we're not going to do that because we were saving a couple of these for Miami Rick, but he's not here. (laughs) Okay, so we'll continue. We'll just carry those over, I guess, until the next time that Rick's with us. Uh, Let's start with uh, item four. And this is from Jay. And he says, hello, APG crew. I despaired a little. Don't we all? I, I read his email and I saw that first line came up like in the preview of the email. And I was like, oh, no. What did we do? Oh, yeah. You know what? 
Liz just pointed out that I can still do number one. But we'll do that well, after. We'll go back to it. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Um, so, yeah, I was like, I, saw, I thought this was the I same thing. I a little as well. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, just, I thought it was just a whinge. I thought, oh, no. I know. I thought, oh, shoot. What do we do? We, we upset somebody. So, anyway, he says, I despaired a little when the crew began the review of the latest Harrison Ford aviation incident. You guys kind of piled on in the beginning and then, remarkably, spun 180 when you realized your source was TMZ. I did look that up, by the way, and I've already forgotten what that stands for, but it does stand for something. Hang on. Very memorable. No, we're going to, I'm going to take the time right now to look it up. And uh, the, the 30 minute zone, I think, or something like that, 30 mile zone has something to do with uh, Los Angeles, California, or maybe Hollywood, California. Mm-hmm. And they call it the, like within 30 miles, they call it 30 mile zone. Never heard of it before, but that's actually uh, what uh, TMZ stands for. So, okay. Not that anybody really cares. Anyway, so he says, uh, you spun 180 when you realized your source was TMZ, tabloidy. Bravo. I absolutely agree with your conclusion, and Captain Nick summed it up nicely. Mr. Ford could well afford a companion when doing the thing he seemingly loves so much. I had an advantage. My source wasn't CMZ. I listened to multiple co- I listened to multiple podcasts, and Aviation News Talk had transcripts from the pilot, tower, and ground via ATC.net. I think that means uh, probably live ATC.net. The APG crew guessed correctly from limited information and their personal experiences that, quote, expectation bias was the culprit. You guys are self-effacing and joke about 50% accuracy. But in the end, you've won an ardent fan. And that's from Jay Roten. So we, They're the best kind of fans, the ardent ones. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we made it. All right. Thank you, Jay. No Thank need you, Jay. to despair. Whew. Yeah, I did. I, I despaired as well, as all of you did when we first saw this in our email. I think, oh, what do we do wrong? <laughs> Especially because it was like, I had just woken up and you know how you're like, if you have an iPhone, it lists like the emails that you've received since yeah. you've last opened your phone. And one of those was there. And it, you can see like just the little snippet of the beginning. I was like, oh, good I was like the day. oh no. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So, but it was a happy ending and yeah, we hit, and we hit absolutely. the 50%. Okay. Uh, that bell comes in handy for so many things, like Delta P. Delta P? <laughs> okay. Uh, going back to item one, Joseph, uh, we played his uh, audio from the last episode, on the last episode, and we decided to split this in half because it's a little over 21 minutes long. So we're going to start this episode, uh, the second half, with, uh, I'll, I'll back it up a little bit so we can kind of remember um, Joseph uh, was talking about all these, th- I mean, amazing number of things and jobs that he has been involved in before getting into his aviation career. And I believe he was talking about getting into the, the gas and, um, uh, petroleum industry and something about, uh, industrial radiography or something like that. I'm not even really sure what that means. And off I went to do that, graduated with, uh, some pretty good grades in that as well, but literally a month after I graduated, 
the oil and gas industry crashed massively back in 2014 there so we're in a really bad situation in terms of yes i had good grades but i was competing for the same work as people who had many many years of experience actually doing the job so off i struggled for a full year trying to apply for jobs in radiography whilst also working self-employed as a truck driver so the money was still coming in quite nicely but it was right on the time where i thought this isn't going to work. I am not going to get into the oil and gas industry. So maybe it's time to perhaps just accept my fate that I'm going to finish working up as a truck driver before I eventually obviously move on to the pilots. That was always one thing that was clear that that was what I wanted to do more than anything else in the world. So I decided that I was going to specialize in truck driving and do dangerous goods transport. So I went and did a week-long course uh, to do the dangerous goods transport certificate and as a final kind of like last chance saloon regarding the radiography work because I knew that they wanted people who had the dangerous goods transport certificate to transport the radioactive isotopes around. It's basically, I don't know if this is any interest to you, Nick, but it's like a posh form of photography in terms of instead of using light as the uh, radiation source, you use high energy ionizing radiation because it will actually penetrate through things and show up cracks but anyway without boring with all the details I did that as a one-day course to do the uh, radioactive transport and I put in my well I updated my CV and put it into the company that I was applying for in the oil and gas sector at the time on the Monday and literally by the Wednesday they said pack everything up because you move into Belgium in order to start working as a radiographer. So needless to say I was absolutely elated because I knew once I got into the industry I could you know forge a good reputation for myself and also obviously I had the truck driving to fall back on in the meantime. So that was like the start of the glory days as it were. It turned out that that particular job wasn't the best paid in the world and I probably would have been better off staying with the truck driving but eventually I got invited to a project up in Scotland back in mid-2017 now and really that was the beginning of the end of my working life as such because it was paying more than enough money in order to start making some massive strides towards paying for my uh, pilot's course. So I worked that for the remainder of 2017 and as obviously I was a self-employed contractor I was expecting that I'd get laid off in the winter time and probably not invited back not because I'd done anything wrong this time but simply because as a contractor they, you're always kind of bottom of the priority list they'd much rather put their own guys on the project but Anyway, uh, my plan was, was I'd finish up around Christmas time because it was rumoured to be finishing then anyway. And then I was going to spend the winter months getting a very, very basic job back in the supermarket again. So I could focus on getting fit and healthy in order to sit the uh, pilot's medical, as well as getting mentally prepared in order to go and sit the aptitude tests, ready to embark on the next big adventure, which was getting into pilot school. But much to my surprise, a couple of, well, the day before I, I was due to be laid off from the project, they said that they wanted me to come back again the next year because I won't bore you with the details, but I fitted a unique role as a crane operator on that particular project. So it was a little bit of a 
squeeze because I only had a couple of months in order to kind of try and get ready to sit the aptitude tests and then obviously return to work for the next part of the project which was early 2018. So anyway uh, we managed to get it all done and then I went and sat the aptitude tests at CE Oxford Aviation Academy back in February 2018 and uh, it was a hugely nerve-wracking time because I didn't know whether I was going to pass or fail them because obviously it had been a long time since I'd last sat an aptitude test. But anyway, a couple of weeks after starting back on the project again in February, I got the notification that I had been successful and passed it. So there was another stage of selection which we had to go through, which was basically just a group exercise in an interview, which I wasn't especially worried about. And then obviously it was just a matter of getting the medical together. And then I was planning on starting up in the autumn time. But this is where it all starts to get a little bit serendipitous because a couple of weeks after that, I ended up getting another notification off the school saying that based on the scores I'd got, this particular airline, which I'll leave unnamed for the time being, they had taken an interest in the scores that I had attained. I never actually knew what I got in the tests, by the way. But anyway, apparently it must have been sufficiently good because they uh, wanted me to continue with an application process in order to get online with that particular airline. So obviously hugely enthused by this, I uh, decided to snap up the opportunity and try my absolute best, even though like I didn't have any formalised degree, I was kind of half expecting that I could do okay because I knew that I had uh, quite a bit of life experience at this point, so I would have stood good in a group setting, but I kind of always envisaged that I'd probably get knocked out in the final round or something because I'd end up going up against somebody who was similarly you know, full of life experience, but they'd have like a decent degree. But anyway, I felt as I'd done well for myself, so I was prepared to accept whatever the answer was going to be. But anyway, one thing led to another, and eventually I found out that I'd been successful in enrolling on a mentored scheme with this particular airline, whereby assuming that my training went well, I would have a job waiting when I got to the end of it. So anyway, I completed the project, went off and got the medical, which all went smoothly and got the finances in order and then enrolled on the course back towards the uh, autumn of 2018 at the age of 30. And then it was into seven months of ground school, which, uh, you know, to anybody else who's thinking about starting this career when they you know, they got a few years under the belt. I graduated with some good grades and stuff and I only dipped on one exam which very embarrassingly was VFR communications but other than that they all went absolutely fine and then it was off to the United States of America in order to participate in the flight training side of things. So I had two hours and 55 minutes previous flying experience when I actually started flying with the school and then nine and a half months later, I graduated with a multi-engine CPL license, which again, I didn't struggle too much in passing. It was not a particularly pleasant test to go through, as no tests are nowadays. But uh, at the end of the day, it's not something that people should be put off by because they think it's all scary and incredibly high grade stuff in order to get through. 
But anyway, now on to the present day. So I returned from the States uh, earlier on this year and I took a couple of weeks off at home and then went back down to Oxford in order to start the multi-engine instrument rating training. And we just got the first six simulator sessions done and then the school closed its doors up because of this damned coronavirus. So here we are back at home at the moment. I've gone back working on the trucks again just until this coronavirus passes us by and then I can uh, resume my training. But anyway, if there's a couple of things I would like to say out there to the community, especially appealing to those people who are, you know, perhaps either in the 30s or, you know, maybe even the 40s. But I think for me, one of the things was, was a lot of people always told me to have a plan B. You know, what's the backup plan on this one, Joseph? Because it's too optimistic. I never, ever took a plan B because all you're doing is subliminally talking to yourself that you don't have any faith that you'll actually become a pilot. And I think it's such a destructive mindset to have. Uh, if you genuinely want to do it, then put your eggs into that particular basket, which I know is contrary to the advice that commonly comes out from uh, the host of this show. But at the end of the day, you have to have some faith in yourself for this one. And secondly, I think one of the most important things that you can do, because I know to the layman out there, it is a huge task to actually get on board with, but the best thing that you can do is simply step aside from the life that you're living and say that this is now the route that I'm going to be on because once you've committed to actually going towards it, then the rest of it will all start to fit into place and you'll quickly realise what you need to do in order to orientate yourself around that particular dream. But for me, for the most part of it, the financial remuneration that you can receive from being a pilot would uh, have been outweighed by the career that I was doing in oil and gas but because I just loved the idea of being a pilot so much it almost became like Stockholm syndrome where <laughs> I've probably not done my health any favors in the the pursuit of this particular dream but at the end of the day I just simply couldn't stop in the end I absolutely had to complete the task and so here we are today but anyway, that's how I got here. I sincerely hope you're all doing well and most importantly, keeping safe at this uh, bad time with the virus on. But anyway, take care of yourself and uh, hopefully I'll catch you at some point in the future. Thanks, Joseph. Um, kind of interesting what he said uh, regarding uh, not having a plan B and that, mm -hmm. that kind of uh, attitude like, well, I'm not going to have a plan B because that would mean that I'd have some way to to like get out Some of out. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Don't give yourself the out if you don't want the out. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, a... I've no doubt he could have uh, returned to a career, um, you know, in radiography or, or even truck driving. But mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I admire him for his single mindedness. And I think you need an element of that if you're going to get through, uh, certainly in as short a time as possible. You've really got to put everything else aside and blink yourself and, and plow on and have absolute confidence in yourself because nothing worse than trying to second guess your decisions all uh, while passing all these exams and flying tests because you just put yourself under a dreadful amount of pressure, additional pressure doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, he acknowledged we've talked about having a kind of a fallback or a backup plan or, yeah. you know, doing your degree in something where you could have a career somewhere else and that's all good advice too but it's it's it kind of goes both ways doesn't it you know if you mm -hmm. have that out maybe it's 
tempting to take it when perhaps you should have persisted a little bit longer. Yeah. If you want to hear the first part of his journey, that was on the last episode, I believe, um, part one. And uh, today was part two. So thank you, Joseph, for taking the time to record that. And it's, and you know, we, it's always interesting to us to hear uh, the many different journeys, the many different doors that we all travel through and open and close uh, to get to where we want to go. And uh, so thank you for sharing yours. Now, item five, uh, I think is about, uh, it's a technical article, article about shimmy dampers. Steph, you want to take that one? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I haven't had that much to drink. Just my one little it's bottle a, of Prosecco here. It's a private the, joke. One well, little bottle. Little bottle of Prosecco. Oh, well, person, person. Well, it's 180 milliliters. That's like six ounces. Ah, it's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. It's yeah, but you like hardly weigh a thing, so that probably has something. Yeah, to and do. I really didn't eat lunch. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> I did have second breakfast this morning, though. Oh, yeah, that's right. What bananas and berries or something? Blackberries. Yeah. Blackberries, nice. Okay, well, we do have some more audio feedback. So instead of doing the shimmy damper, we're going to have Gail tell us. (laughs) My apologies, and thank goodness we don't have to listen to a technical article (laughs) from me. It was very, very entertaining, I think. Anyway, um, Gail sent us some audio feedback. So here we go. Hi, all. This is Gail from Germany and now Illinois. I thought I'd send in feedback on what happened in my carefully planned travel times thanks to COVID-19. I had a busy flight schedule this spring into summer as my four-year-long project was finally almost ready to go live. I had created a perfect plan of work in Europe over six weeks with a vacation in the middle that saved both me and my company a ton of money in flights. I started on February 9th with a flight to Munich and then I drove to a town outside of Linz, Austria. Before I left, I made a joke that I might get stuck in Austria if someone sneezes since the China travel ban had just been announced. I worked for a while, um, about two weeks, and Italy identified its first case of local transmission on February 20th in northern Italy. Um, I had a flight that returned me to Chicago on February 21st. Um, The only screening in Munich that I was asked about was if I had been in China in the last 14 days. Um, I returned home, and then on February 25th, the first case in Austria was detected. Um, It was in Innsbruck, where I was actually going to be on my next trip that was going to leave for the next few weeks. Um, Oddly enough, I had a number of colleagues that were booked to stay in the hotel where the couple worked. Um, I had booked a guest house in the country near to the office we'd be working in, so I felt quite smug. Plus, it had a farm with cows to pet, which I was very excited about. I then flew to Denver on March 7th, um, although I was pretty nervous, um, and returned to Chicago on March 8th. And the idea was is I went there for my my nephew's birthday and to visit with my grandmother, whose health has started to decline, unfortunately. Um, I was worried enough about my husband catching it that we sanitized all the touch points on our seat. Uh, We also made sure to keep a six-foot distance from my 95-year-old grandmother at all times. And at this point is when I started my nonstop hand washing and attempting to stop touching my face. Um, Both flights were still pretty full, um, which is expected for flights to Denver at that time of year. I know I've always had to pay what I felt like was a fortune thanks to skiers and spring breakers. 
At this point, my upcoming travel was a flight from O'Hare to Munich with a drive to a town outside of Innsbruck on March 15th. Um, the plan was is I'd spend two weeks working, then fly to Hamburg, where I'd meet up with my husband and some friends, cruise, take a cruise to Norway for a week, and then fly back to Austria to work another two weeks before heading home on April 17th. I had also snuck in a long weekend in Salzburg over Easter with my husband before he'd returned to Chicago. However, of course, none of that happened. Um, on March 6th, my employer sent around its first memo telling us to stay home if we're sick and to wash our hands. Um, it also only allows travel for business critical activities. But my project is considered business critical, so I assume I'll still be going. I am, however, nervous about the cruise at this point, and I'm hoping it'll cancel. This is about the time the Diamond Princess was happening. Um, I start trying to frighten my husband into us just canceling it, even if the cruise itself doesn't cancel, since he has pretty much every risk factor. Um, I was doing this by showing him the menus the poor Diamond Princess passengers had to choose from um, when they had the meals delivered to their room. Um, it didn't really work. He was, since I assume I'm still going on my work trip, um, and that my husband's still going to fly to Europe, so I start looking for travel alternatives within Europe, like maybe going to Prague, which I hadn't had a chance to go to yet, or back to Budapest, where we spent two days um, a few years ago and loved it. Then, on March 11th, President Trump announced that he was suspending all travel um, from Europe for 30 days, which started a mini panic at my company because we had a number of people in Austria and it wasn't clear if the ban included U.S. citizens at first. Luckily, U.S. citizens and permanent residents were not included, but we were on pins and needles to get one of our employees back who works in the U.S. on a visa. Happily, they made it home. Um, on March 12th, my workplace, um, I happened to work for an interna international discount grocery chain, ends all international travel through the end of April, uh, or sorry, sorry, through the end of March, and says anyone returning from overseas must self-quarantine. Um, that happens to be most of the team, except for me, because I had returned back in February. Um, and uh, they also added additional sick time for all employees who catch the coronavirus or are ordered to self-quarantine. Uh, most of our store and DC employees had paid sick time already, but the extra is greatly appreciated. Um, we, we rebooked my trip that was supposed to leave on March 15th to leave on April 4th. Uh, clearly, we were sweet summer children. Uh, my husband happily was able to turn his uh, International United ticket to credit, and Lufthansa let us put off rebooking our Hamburg to Munich flights until June. Um, we decide that we'll come up with a great trip with our friends after my project goes live in June. <laughs> so, also at this point, um, our national and international offices start stress testing our remote working infrastructure. Um, in the U.S., we've always had the ability to do remote working, but we're not really allowed except in certain rare circumstances. So it hadn't really ever been stress tested with everyone using it all at once. Then um, on March 16th, um, the U.S. national offices changed to remote work for all employees and Illinois entered a stay at home order shortly after that, um, which meant now we were at home for sure. The Ada cruise to Norway finally canceled itself the following week. Uh, they kind of felt like to me they were leaving at the last minute, which was a bit nerve wracking because um, we were worried about getting, of course, if we could get any money back at all on that cruise if it went ahead and sailed. 
but Norway was already closing ports, so it didn't seem likely. Um, from there, of course, my rebooked April trip was canceled, and the go-live date for my project was moved to the end of September, based on the assumption that internal travel within Europe will be allowed starting in June. Um, in Illinois, uh, we're under a stay-at-home order at least until the end of May. Um, I'm in the Chicago suburbs, so whether or not we'll continue to be at home beyond that, we'll have to wait and see. Um, also, um, our store in D.C. employees also received a $2 an hour raise for the duration of the outbreak. They were uh, pretty well paid compared to most grocery chains, but I know they are working incredibly hard and, of course, putting themselves at personal risk to make sure we all have enough food um, and cleaning supplies and everything we need. Um, it's odd. I am technically an essential worker since I support that operation, but clearly I just stay home and take conference calls in my pajamas, um, as I put it. So I don't feel that essential. Uh, but to end on a high note, I think domestic air travel will bounce back much quicker than after 9-11. With 9-11, I personally cut back on flying because the new securities restrictions were, well, annoying and made driving the shorter trips much more feasible. Once you included in all the extra time, you'd have to stay at the airport and the lower cost of driving. Um, with COVID-19, we'll hopefully have a vaccine next year, which will help people feel more comfortable flying. Also, um, I've just really been heartened on how well people and companies have adapted and worked together to find solutions. Um, in my own company, where we're almost proud at how conservative and slow to change we are, we've been able to quickly pivot and adapt in ways that amaze all of us. And I've seen that sort of everywhere um, when you look at the news, when you look for the positive stories. Anyway, I hope everyone stays well or continues to get better. And of course, thank you all. And you guys have been keeping me company while I've been at home in the house now for, I think, six weeks. Thanks. Thank you, Gal. Great audio. And wondering what store could that be? International discount mm. grocery. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> good, que good question. <laughs> uh, it's just sorry. a guess. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know who's like leaf blowing or something or. Oh, yeah. I hear a little bit of that. That's not too bad, though. It's really loud in my ears and very distracting. <laughs> so I apologize to anyone who's hearing that in their audio. Is that is that your dad out there with the leaf blower? You know, it might be him. He's been doing some yard work. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, yeah. you can shout at him. That's okay. the weed whacker earlier. No, it sounds like it's up the hill and on the other side. It's it's not my yard. But... All right. Hey, Nick, uh, you changed locations there. Uh, yeah, I noticed. Jeff, I, that city uh, looks familiar to me. Uh, and Gail Jeff, was just talking uh, about it. Yeah, uh, Jeff from Chicago is in the chat room, so I thought I'd make him feel at home. Oh, <laughs> who's that? Oh, Jeff Gebhardt. Hello from Chicago. Chicago. And Gail's in the suburbs, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's where we, uh, Nick and I rented the um, the RV. Um, what was the name of the place that we got? It was in the south side of Chicago. Or uh, oh, suburban you in Molina? Or? Molina. Uh, uh, Mokina. Mokina? Mokina. Something. Mostly. Thank you for the feedback, whoever did that. <laughs> where did that come from? I think Nick's been playing around with Nick, that. Nick, me. <laughs> Definitely not you. Yeah, not that anything is changing in your <laughs> on your screen. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, thanks, Gail, again, and uh, sorry I didn't get to take your cruise, but yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you know, lots of us are in the same boat with canceled plans and things like that, and 
I think most of us at this point realize there's not anything we can do about it. So we'll just wait until a point in time where we can travel again. Yeah. 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 I think that um, now I understand why we saw that uh, that feedback banner because uh, we were talking about the RV and the feedback banner has me in that uh, ah, great right. t-shirt. Uh, yeah. Here, let me put it back up the there RV again. King. The RV King. Let's see. Where is it? Uh, there we go. King of the RV. <laughs> All right. Very good. Let's move on to Greg sent in this uh, regarding, well, he pretty much sets it up for us. I was listening to episode 423 and the discussion of the Titan fuel contamination story. And you guys were talking about the fuel contamination causing issues with the variable inlet guide vanes. I was curious how fuel contamination would affect the inlet guide vanes. The inlet guide vanes shouldn't have any contact with the fuel, correct? Are you thinking that the contaminated fuel was having some sort of effect on the FADEC or other electric uh, electronic engine controls, and that was causing the actuation mechanism for the IGVs to malfunction? And this is uh, from Greg Peterson. Uh, he works at the very large donkey fan company. Yeah, it's a good question, Greg. Um, obviously, didn't make myself entirely clear. Um, the inlet guide vanes are twisted uh, all together in a gallery uh, so that they present the right angle to the incoming airflow and direct it onto the next stage of compressors. Uh, and they're turned by um, a actuator arm, which is attached to a piston. Uh, that piston is powered by fuel. So, you know, fuel's a handy liquid to have around an engine. There's plenty of it around. So uh, high-pressure fuel is uh, ducted into the correct side of the piston to move the IGVs. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's how it works. I mean, it saves from having to run an extra hydraulic line in there. You know, it's I, I don't understand entirely the logic. I mean, you could put a hydraulic line in there. After all, you've got hydraulic lines uh, working the thrust reversers. Uh, but they, the engine manufacturers whose design this is uh, have, you know, um, generally speaking, used um, high-pressure fuel. It's, it's there, it's handy, it's a liquid, it's no big deal. Um, so there you go. Uh, and obviously, if you've got tank contaminants in the fuel and the fuel becomes sticky... Uh, then those pistons uh, will obviously cease to move. And that was the problem with both this. Uh, we think this is the problem with this particular incident you're referring to and also the Hong Kong A330 that uh, I covered in a plane tail a while back had a similar problem uh, of fuel contamination. And the good thing so about I, I'm sorry. I yeah, I just um, I hope that answers the question. The good thing is that uh, fuel is not flammable. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I'll uh, take that back. Well, uh, unlike hydraulic, <laughs> fuel, hydraulic fluid is too. Hydraulic oil, which is, of course. Yeah, I know. Uh, oh, that's flammable too, yeah. All those li <laughs> all those liquids go into that engine are probably flammable. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, actually, fuel isn't flammable. It's inflammable. Ah, okay. Whatever that yeah. means. <laughs> you can, uh, if it's Put under high pressure. It, it, it might catch on fire too. Yeah, you could probably catch it on fire. Under high actually, pressure. aviation fuel is pretty hard to catch it is actually, unless you aerosol yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I remember with the 
been down the fire section and uh, we're all messing about with various fire extinguishers. Uh, and the guy had a big um, pan of aviation fuel there. And he's using blow torches and, I mean, all sorts of things. And he says, you see all these uh, films, and a guy lights a cigarette and just throws a cigarette down, and that sets light to the world. He said, this stuff is really hard to set light to. That's like water. Exactly we'll right. Put that yeah. cigarette right out. But if you aerosol it, as happens in an accident, and it turns into a vapor cloud, then that will go woof, just like a dog. Just like it. Yeah. All right. Very good. So yeah, that was, that was all news to me. I didn't realize that, um, that kind of technology existed for the, uh, variable in advance. Uh, you don't uh, have them on your airplane. Uh, shut up. <laughs> I mean, they're shoveling coal still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're still yeah. working with steam. Yeah. Okay. You just got a big cold shoot. <laughs> that by the way, may have been what we saw on the side of that a 400, the coal. Oh yeah. Door. That could have been the, yeah. yeah. Where they, Bring the sacks and tip the coal in. <laughs> exactly. All right. Item eight. Christian uh, says, hey, gang, when they told. Okay. So he's, it's a follow up on the incident, in, uh, the Delta 757 in uh, uh, the Portugal. Um, in the Azores. Azores. Yeah. They're uh, archipelago. Um, I think it's an archipelago. Anyway, a group of islands out there uh, owned by the Portuguese. And I'm just trying to remember exactly where it was, what the actual uh, island name is. And I can't remember it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Ponta Delgada. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Where'd you see that? It's in the article. Yeah. Okay. When they told passengers to buckle up, this is probably not what they had in mind. Portuguese investigators have determined that the first officer's failure to control the derotation of a Delta Airlines Boeing 757-200 resulted in a heavy nose gear impact severe enough to buckle the fuselage. And then he refers to the article on flightglobal.com. And again, this is Christian Bass from Richmond Hill, Ontario, not too far from where our control room is in Toronto. Liz Piper. Anyway, um... So the aircraft arriving in the Azores from New York JFK on the 18th of August last year touched down normally with its main landing gear on, oh, here we go, Ponta Delgada's runway 12. Portuguese Accident Investigation Authority GPIAAF says that the first officer's piloting technique, which demonstrated excessive corrections of attitude and thrust, possibly in response to variable crosswind, resulted in a heavy nose-down elevator input to derotate after the main gear contact. This might have been exacerbated by a reduction of engine thrust during the derotation, increasing the moment around the lateral axis, and the inquiry also points out that braking can require aft-control column pressure to reduce the derotation rate. Um, the flight data recordings indicate a 1.53 G main gear contact followed by a nose gear impact of 1.88 G. So that's quite a, hmm. quite an excessive force on the, uh, on the, well, nose. it's uncomfortable, but 1.88, yeah. 1.9 G. I wouldn't have thought that was terrible. Yeah. yeah well, it seems like that. Yeah, you're right. It wouldn't have buckled the fuselage. I would have hoped not. I mean, the guy was obviously a bit heavy-handed and yeah. derotated 
in an ugly manner, but I'm a bit little surprised it did that amount of damage. It goes on, it says the aircraft was operating at just 1% below its maximum landing weight, uh-huh. and they uh-huh. believe that contributed to the extent of structural yes. damage. That okay. makes sense, yeah. Well, in, in theory, once you're below your max landing weight, you're, you, you know, the airplane okay. structurally yeah. supposed to be sound, but obviously the lighter you are, the better. Yeah. And, you know, if it was a 300 model, you know, the stretched version, I could even see, you know, more of a tendency to have an issue with the derotation or excessive derotation. But um, anyway, you know, I was when I heard about this uh, report, I thought, you know, this is not the first time that I've heard of issues with the that series of aircraft, seven uh, fives, even seven sixes, that um, uh, have issues with um, smooth derotation. I think, especially the seven five, for some reason, at uh, Acme, we've operated that airplane for many, many years, and I remember, I don't know, two decades ago, seeing memos sent out to the pilots regarding, you know, being being careful with. Um, the derotation of the nose gear after main gear touchdown. And I did a little research, found an article, a newsletter, a Boeing newsletter article on preventing hard nose gear touchdowns. And this is from 2002. So this has been an issue for many, many years. And, yeah, and actually, Rick talked about it not too long ago with mm-hmm. the 7.6, uh, with regards to the 7.6 anyway. Yeah. And how it's mm, easier, I guess, to to have that hard nose gear touchdown because of some of the characteristics of how the aircraft lands. And if you're landing on a, so you're heavy, so you're just under your max landing weight and you're coming into an airport and maybe, uh, I don't know what the the runway length there uh, at Ponta Delgada is, but you know, if you're thinking, yeah, I need, I need to really get, you know, on these brakes a little bit faster than I normally do. And if you, if you're not like calculating in your mind that you're going to probably have to at, you know, use a little bit more back pressure, on the uh, yoke to you know keep the nose gear from slamming down, then I could see this happening. And yeah, yeah, it is seven thousand six hundred and twenty-one feet in length. Yeah, so that's not a super long runway. No, so you'd probably well, you think in your mind you might want to derotate quickly, get all the wheels on. But in fact, mm-hmm. uh, while the nose wheel is off, you've got more weight on the main gear and your brakes are actually more effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, once your nose wheel down, you're spreading that weight out and there's no brakes on the, on the nose gear. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Uh, and you, you do, you're quite right, Jeff, have to be careful. As soon as you start braking, uh, the nose is going to start thundering down. If it's particularly if you're braking hard and you have to actively, uh, apply certainly in the airbus apply back pressure to stop it uh, banging on um but uh other aircraft um you know uh, behave differently uh, john uh, sorry mike blackburn asks uh, i believe in the this particular aircraft um you allow the nose to come down but you never go past the neutral position so you should never need forward pressure on the uh control column to uh derotate so it's just a relaxing of the back pressure normally uh, uh i'm assuming uh, and this guy actually went well past the neutral and actually went into forward pressure so yeah. he actually actively pushed the nose down which is does not sound like the correct technique. yeah they have the graph there of showing the actual control input and i'm going i'm looking at it going well <laughs> yeah it's not good that's mm. not good oh well well thank you uh christian for uh sending us the um article 
regarding yeah, that. Yeah, uh, Mike also mentions that uh, you really need to get the nose wheel down before you lose elevator effectiveness mm. because, uh, obviously, as you slow, yeah. uh, when the nose starts dropping, you've got no way of cushioning that impact if you've run out of airspeed. So the, it's yeah. just going to fall. You're along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need to you need to do it while you still have the effectiveness of the elevator. That's for sure. Mm. All right, uh, David. This is an interesting one. Uh, hi, APG crew. Firstly, thanks to all of you for the wonderful show. Although it's truly fantastic, I do have an ever increasing problem. Uh oh. I've started listening live to the YouTube shows, which means there's no new show left to listen to on my daily exercise rounds. I only have 30-odd spare old shows of APG left, and they get used up once every two days. I can't expect the Plane Safety Podcast to pick up the slack, as new episodes of Pips, also a great show, sorry to admit that, are as rare as a solar eclipse. Ooh, burn. Burn. He's been a little better recently. A little more yeah. prolific. Uh, yeah. now that he, you know, is at home more often. <laughs> anyway, perhaps Dr. Steph can make a remote diagnosis of APG syndrome and suggest a management plan. Mm-hmm. Yes, you yeah. definitely have APG syndrome. And have you listened to all of the Catholic pilot episodes? No, you don't want to do that. And you know what? A lot of people don't realize, I don't, you know, that I think now uh, on Apple podcasts or whatever, our, our RSS feed. So wherever you're downloading the podcast, it's not going all the way back to episode number one because there just is not enough room on the RSS feed to handle all the stuff. So I think it stops at around, I don't know, a hundred ish. So if you want to listen to the, like the, like episode one and between that and wherever the RSS feed kind of catches up, uh, you can go to the website and, Mm -hmm. um, and just do a search. You don't have to go, you know, there's a podcast page and you'd have to go several pages before you start getting to the beginning of the uh, APG. You can just do a search. So just put in APG 001 or APG Mm -hmm. 002, and that way it'll take you right to it. Should we also suggest some other fantastic aviation podcasts? No, we should definitely not do that. No. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. There are plenty of other ones out there. You're aware of Plane Safety Podcast, so presumably also Plane Talking UK. Um, Oh, my gosh. Uh, Podcasting. This is dangerous. Uh, I can't name them all because I'm gonna. gonna <laughs> You're gonna forget somebody. Leave them all out. So yeah, podcasting on a plane. Play, podcasting on a plane. Fighter pilot podcast. You could listen to aviation news talk news. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Max Trescott. We mentioned aviation his news talk yeah. earlier. Someone someone wrote into opposing bases. Opposing bases. Now nah, that oh, I wouldn't worry about that one. <laughs> uh, I just got <laughs> a uh, a new goodie from them. A, a new Yeti tumbler. So, Ooh, nice. Um, I know. Flying nice. in life. Uh, Flying in life. Fast jet performance isn't bad. Yeah. You should have plenty of content to get you through your oh, yeah. exercise routine. And you did say airplane geeks, right? You said airplane geeks. God forbid Miami Rick. Houston, we have a podcast. Houston, we have a podcast. That's a space yeah. thing, though, isn't it? That's a NASA thing. Yeah. yeah. That's very good. It's not aviation. <laughs> um, just kidding. I'm sure it's and a great many, podcast. many, many more. Well, they, many, many, they many fly. More. They get airborne. Yeah. So lots of good stuff out there, David, uh, to help you out. I know it's not the APG, granted. I mean, obviously, listen to us first. Yeah, of course. But if you're you caught can up. go back and listen to extra plane tales. If you listen to nine, that's the equivalent of one show. <laughs> yeah, but it's well worth listening to them again. So 
yeah, check out and subscribe to uh, the Plain Tales podcast. Um, anyway, down to my questions. I don't know whether any of you have seen the new Netflix show, Into the Night. I have not. Um, it's set on an aircraft, looks like an A320, that must continually evade daylight. Everyone dies in the sunshine for reasons I'm not altogether clear about. Altogether yeah, clear about. <laughs> yeah, just pull the window blinds down. <laughs> and need well, maybe is it the airplane can't get into the sun either? I don't well, know. Is it, made, is it Icarus? Is it made of wax or what? I don't know. Uh, he says, I guess they don't go, uh, they don't really elaborate too much about that little minor technical point. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not important. No. Main premise of the show details not important leaving aside the show's obvious problems shots of a metropolis below when they're supposed to be flying over the pacific ocean <laughs> oops it's a great fun uh or it is great fun if you were in the scenario how would you handle it what would be the best route and plan to continually avoid sunshine and what would be your choice of aircraft perhaps we should follow the series premise and say it has to be a narrow body Thanks oh, for no, 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 no. You need something with decent range. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to keep stopping and refueling. And every time you stop, the, the sun's going to start you know, catching up. You could be a, like an Airbus 321LR or something. They have pretty good range. Okay. Well, you obviously got to fly um, east, haven't you? Because you got to, having got into the dark, you want to stay there. And if you fly west, you'll, you'll fly huh? towards the sun. I would yeah, say, but you're not going to outrun that. Yeah, I would say. I know, yes, you can. If I'd you say fly, fly near well, the so pole, so don't fly that fast. If you fly near the pole, you can get the the. But if you're flying east, you're going to fly into the sunrise. So fly east. Um, oh, okay. So, fly west. I mean, not I mean, east. fly west. Yeah, fly west. Which the sun, and then just take <laughs> off. You know, at night. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> and fly west, and just don't yeah. fly too fast. Uh, no, you, and can you could always fly north like. and south to make sure that you're always within, you know. Don't fly near the equator because <laughs> it moves down fast there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you fly up near one of the poles, uh, preferably In the pole if winter. it's uh, yeah, if it's winter, the South Pole. If it's summer, the North. No, other way around. God, I'm not having a bad night. Oh. <laughs> you got to get Sorry. one of those apps Sorry. for your iPhone so that you know you can see like the little shadow of where it's sun. You know. Sun and dark, right? And then just follow yeah. that. If it's if it's <laughs> northern hemisphere winter, you want to fly near the North Pole, uh, and you just pick your latitude where you can fly at the same speed of the Earth's rotation. Yeah, at the that's, uh, that's at the pole, it's like what seventeen thousand miles per hour or something like that. Or that's uh, that's to be in orbit. So it must be in order to do that. The yeah. the problem with that with this short range airplane is that if you fly up there and you know over Greenland or whatever, uh, then where are you going to land to refuel? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to have air to air refueling or something? Mm -hmm. so not, not, too many, fly. not too many narrow body passenger jets have listen, we can take care of all of this with the magic of film and television and yeah. just not address it. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Just keep you flying. You just cut to commercial constantly. or to the next episode. It's like, like when, when you say, like, when do these people use the bathroom? There is a way of working out the speed of rotation. Uh, I'd, I'd have to well, check I'm sure that. there is. Yeah. And then you just match that to your true airspeed or actually your ground speed, not true airspeed. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So, um, yeah, I hope you, uh, yeah, we, we, we'd 
knock this out, no problem. You know, exactly right. And the trick is to fly just inside the sunset line. Uh, so you're in the dark, uh, but then when you land, uh, you've got the whole of the night to refuel and take off again, and then you can roll along and catch up the the sunset time. Hmm. You know, the line of sunset as it goes around the world. I mean, how do you do this? Because eventually you're going to run out of land. And you're going to have to go over an ocean in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, minor so I'm where sure are you going to, halfway across the ocean, where are you going to get the fuel from? Nick, I expect you to get out some large maps of the world and plot all of this for the this, next show. This is your homework assignment. How, how it works out. Look, yeah. I, I, I flew proper airplanes, so I only need to land like once every 12 hours. So <laughs> I would have been fine. Jeff would have had a problem. I'm still trying to figure out how you drop an Ethernet cable from an airplane and then connect it to the guy in the car on the runway that's flying behind the airplane. And then they plug the Ethernet cable into their laptop to download the very special program to keep all the control towers open on the West Coast. What was that called? Scorpion or something like that? One of the first (laughs) episodes of that show. Like, what? Are you kidding me? yeah that's real yeah okay and oh yeah you remember we talked about it because if the for some reason if the airport control towers on the west coast couldn't open then basically all these airplanes would crash <laughs> right right yeah because you know what would we do without air well, traffic controllers all the snakes in the planes so would get out yeah, exactly. and if you didn't have the president on board they no one would be able to fly it Anyway, I love Hollywood. Really do. Yeah. So realistic. Yes. And watch out for all those criminals that are passengers. Yes. All right. Thank you, David. <laughs> I know we nailed that one. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Here, let me well, get this. Well, into the 90%. Made it clear as. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> all right. Uh, ben writes. Uh, oh, you know, we were talking about this on an earlier show, the the boutique uh PC-12, Pilatus PC-12 crash. He said, this is Ben, a pretty recent new listener since the late late 300s. Wow, we haven't been around that long. Oh, you're talking about the 300s as far as the episode numbers. Gotcha. From Germany uh, to your most entertaining and educating podcast. <laughs> well, educating, maybe. Uh, as a currently non-current GA pilot working on it, but difficult because of the damn virus, the most gripping topic for me from APG 423 was the PC-12 crash at Mesquite in Texas. While I agree with most of what you said about it, I would like to comment on the bit about the, quote, nasty stall characteristics of the PC-12. I'm in no way affiliated with Pilatus, having never flown any powered Pilatus aircraft. There is the B-4 glider I once flew, and the PC-12 certainly is one size too big for me. However, having looked closely at the video you probably referred to when talking about the stall characteristics, and then he gives us a link to the YouTube video, I don't think they're particularly particularly nasty. That's a hard word for me to say. Um, They have a sequence. Yeah, I'm thinking they don't look great. Uh, They have a sequence in the video filmed from inside the cabin without the stick pusher. Please find the attached screenshot from the very second before the left wing drops. The test pilot has the yoke at 90 degrees to the right to keep the horizon straight during the stall, which is basically a spin initialization maneuver. Okay, let's see. Should I share this? I think it might be interesting for the people that are with us in the 
chat room to look at. The yoke is 90 degrees to the right, just to hold at wings level. That's not good. Um, yet the aircraft does not spin, but self-stabilizes after banking approximately 80 degrees with aileron neutral and a spiral dive. I'd rather call that well-tempered. Okay. No. Uh, no. They oh, well. No. <laughs> <laughs> a well-tempered just kind of will basically stay wings level yeah. and then just drop the nose straight. Yeah, right? a well-tempered airplane, you just get a nose drop. Yeah. You don't get any wing drop. Wing, a wing drop is not a, a comfortable stall characteristic. Um, you do not want a wing, a, particularly a severe wing drop. This was not a an easy uh, wing drop. This was a snap. Almost. Yeah, it, very, it really did. The aircraft rolled very rapidly. Very r- abruptly. When, when the wing dropped. So I would not call that a... Uh, uh, a very comfortable stall at all. Yeah. They lose about 800 feet during that maneuver, which is, of course, absolutely fatal when flying in the pattern. But that's the case with any high-performance trapezoidal wing if you stall it without stick pusher, which Pilatus f- fitted as standard equipment. Yeah, there's a reason. <laughs> they had to install the stick pusher because of its uh, stall characteristics. Uh, he says, I think the video is very instructive. I'm very glad it's available in the public domain. And I don't think the reputation of the aircraft should suffer because it is, or because of it, I guess. Uh, oh, because it's in the public domain. No, I don't think so. So maybe you took us the wrong way. We weren't criticizing the airplane. We were just saying No, that, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. This is not a, this this particular incident was not an issue with the aircraft itself, other than the engine failure, which it, you know, suffered. Right. We were just mentioning the stick pusher aspect of the thing that occurred at the very end before he you know, yeah, if the pilot hadn't got himself into that position, uh, so slow speed, he wouldn't have entered the stall regime, the stick pusher wouldn't have activated, and uh, he wouldn't have crashed. So yeah. the fact that there's a stick pusher means to me that it probably doesn't hasn't got benign stall characteristics. Right. The fact that the aircraft crashed had nothing to do with the fact that it had a stick pusher. Uh, it had to do with the fact that the pilot ran out of height and airspeed. Yeah. That's a great airplane. It really is. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, we've never said anything bad about it at all. In fact, what was that, the name of the lady, uh, the Colorado um, weather uh, meteorologist, uh, TV meteorologist, that uh, and, and her name is um, uh, is the same as uh, the famous <laughs> – I can't think of her name now – Amelia Earhart. Um, but she's named for Amelia Earhart. And she oh, did right. the yep. world around the world flight, and she chose the PC twelve to do it. Uh, so it's a very, very good airplane. So didn't mean to disparage it at all. I don't think we did. Uh, it's just that uh, it does. Even the company, I, I think itself, says or admits that its stall characteristics are not the best. No, I, I'm just going to take issue with a couple of comments here. Mm-hmm. Um, the the requirements for the test pilot to stall uh, the aircraft in all the various uh, in, in test parameters that they have to do uh, often requires them to stall in certain attitudes. So this stall with him with the stick hard over, uh, the control column hard over, is probably him required to do a, a, a wings level stall. So whilst he has still control of the ailerons, he is trying to keep the wings level so that they, when the aircraft stalls, it's within the parameters for what he's required to do to test the aeroplane. Right. So I, I don't criticize. I think the pilot should be yeah. 
criticized for using aileron uh, and after all any airplane that uh, is worth its salt will still have some aileron control right up to and even after the stall mm-hmm. um so uh, i don't think that should be criticized and i'm and i'm gonna also say um using aileron um is uh, a spin initialization maneuver uh, i don't think so really in order to initiate a spin you need to have a high yaw right. rate uh and aileron doesn't necessarily generate that uh you don't get into too many problems uh with aileron uh, the biggest problem with uh getting into a spin is an extremely high yaw rate um so i'm just going to go if i wanted to spin an airplane i would stall it and as I stalled it, I would put a bootful of rudder on to get the airplane to auto rotate, and then it would yep. go into a spin. Yep. Putting aileron wouldn't necessarily do that. Um, I've done so, thousands of spins in the T thirty seven, and that's that's exactly how we enter a spin. You know, we keep the wings level, mm-hmm. keep the the nose very high, the airspeed bleeds off, and as it gets slower and slower, you feed in more and more rudder, and that's what initiates the spin. Same exact thing in one seventy two. Yeah, which is the only aircraft I've done yeah. spins in. And you say the aircraft does not spin, but self-stabilizes after banking approximately 60 degrees. Well, I'm going to say as soon as the aircraft's ended a stall, and particularly after a severe wing drop like that, the test pilot is going to unload and unstall the wings precisely so it doesn't enter into a spin yep. because he's going to recover from the stall. He's not going to hold the aircraft into the stall. Um and uh, a spiral dive, yeah, that, that is very benign. If the aircraft has a spiral dive reaction following a stall, that's fine. But this thing is on its ear. Uh, and it's <laughs> not an airplane I would like to have with that stall characteristic, which is obviously why they fitted a stick pusher so that you don't end up flying into that area, that problem. Yep. I hope I've made stuff clear. I don't think I have, but there you go. There you go. No, makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. It certainly does, Ollie. All right. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Again, we love the airplane. Uh, Oh, yeah. It's a grand airplane. No no criticism of the airplane. Let's see. Brian writes in. He says, uh, I saw this Twitter post a day after I listened to the most recent episode, which is 423. Um, At the time, he sent this in where Nick was discussing getting down into the basement of the A340 so that the fuel door could be latched by the flight crew. It's a quick and informative video. It might be something your listeners would be interested in viewing. And so we'll put the link in the video in the show notes. We're not going to play it here, but it's very interesting. We were talking about that incident uh, many, many years ago when Northwest Airlines was still operating. It was uh, Kennedy Steve at JFK and the, um, uh, was it a Swiss... uh, um, Lufthansa. Lufthansa, I'm sorry. They sounded uh, German. Yeah, you're right. It was Lufthansa. And they uh, were in an A340 and they wanted to pull off, take themselves out of the uh, takeoff sequence so that they could take care of a panel, a fuel panel that had uh, opened up or had never been closed. And uh, so Nick was talking, told us about this um, E&E compartment and how you access it and everything else. And uh, the name of this uh, this video is A340 Basement. And uh, it takes you a uh, first-person view of how you get down there behind the captain's seat and the person walks around the entire area down there and then 
back up through the hole. So it's very interesting. Yeah, you can see the ladder that goes down. By the way, I I think I said that the avionics hatch opens outwards. It doesn't. It opens inwards. Oh. It's a plug plug type hatch. Okay. So uh, apologies for that. But you can see all that, and you can also at one moment see the door where you access the um, forward cargo hold. So uh, that's if if you're a clever bloke and you've got lots of gold bullion. Uh, in the full cargo hold, that's how you sneak in there and pinch a gold bar, put it in your pocket, and then you won't have to worry about your pension anymore. Speaking from experience, huh? Oh, oh. <laughs> how do you think you? I don't know how that, comfortably. I don't know where that bar went. <laughs> no, no, no idea. What? So, <laughs> what if you had like a an exotic car down there, Nick? Uh, uh, yes, you could. Uh, you then you could get into the uh, exotic car. And you could play around with it, and you might even lock yourself in it by accident <laughs> and not be able to get out again, um, which is rumored to have happened to one captain who decided that uh, this, I don't know what it was, Lamborghini or something, um, would be a grand to get into, and uh, climbed in, and he decided to take some pictures of himself in there, and then he closed the door and take some pictures, and without him realizing, he managed to lock himself in the car and he had no keys and the security system prevented him from the car security system preventing him from getting out again uh and he was stuck he was absolutely stuck in this just honk the horn a bunch well the other guy couldn't really leave the flight day i don't know how many were there were on board quite honestly (laughs) this is an oft told but there are the details always seem to change every time I hear murky. this story. <laughs> yeah, all a bit murky. So I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, I can imagine it. I it would be very amusing. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> I mean, after the fact, definitely. Yeah, yeah it would be very career ending. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. That's funny. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Brian, for uh, giving us that link. And we'll have that in the show notes for you all to watch. It was very um, enter- uh, interesting, not entertaining, but informative uh very much unlike the show all right um jeff writes in uh jeff with a g um hi everyone was listening to your latest show and heard about the virtual racing you've been enjoying we were talking about i racing and formula one racing game i've discovered some real racing just perfect for these times as a physicist i've got to side with real racing even if the cars are a little small over a racing simulator We all prefer aircraft to sims, don't we? The color commentary and dynamic camera work really makes these videos great. Enjoy die-cast car racing. So I looked at this video, and at first I was thinking, how are these cars? It's great great, uh, video work, by the way, and and, uh, audio. And I was looking at these cars racing down this track, and I'm thinking, how are they being powered? Is there something in the track or something in the car that's causing it? Well, they're not. They are... They're diecasts like Hot Wheels, Matchbox. Mm-hmm. I know that many of you, you know, in my age group or maybe a little bit younger. Oh, we, they we still have them? played with Matchbox. They still have those kind of cars. cars out there. I don't know about now, but certainly when I was a kid, we had them. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to make them move on their own, you have to use uh, the force of gravity. And so you if you have a track, then, of course, you start them at a higher level. And then they, you know, the, the gravity is what makes them go. I remember I had a track, a Hot Wheels track. I think it had a big loop in it, which was pretty cool. Uh, but this uh, this is a real thing. I mean, it's amazing 
I looked at several of these uh, videos of these diecast cars, but not a lot of control. You just basically let go of the car and that's pretty much it. Or you put them against this little stop and then push a button and then the gate opens and then they're they're on their own. Kind of like like the uh, Pinewood Derby. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Very much like Pinewood Derby, Um, but very interesting um, production values on these uh, yeah. videos. The thing that made this for me was the commentary. The two guys <laughs> commentating on this were absolutely hilarious. They really were. It's <laughs> very good. So please check that out. We'll put that YouTube link in the show notes. And uh, thank you, Dr. Jeff, our uh, physicist, one of, one of many. <laughs> uh, we have, uh, we have lots of, yeah. If he's a physicist and he's interested in gravity driven cars, mm-hmm. can he explain to me how gravity works? Do you think? I think he could recite Newton's laws for you. Probably very well. well. Yeah, it's not quite the same, but I mean, <laughs> is it, are there waves? I mean, where, where, how does this force that keeps us on the Earth uh, transmitted? I mean, that's what I want to know. Well, we know, I you know, personally know, because uh, a couple of us have met him in person, uh, Stefan, up in, um, at uh, Syracuse. He's a, he's a uh, professor of physics as well. And uh, but he never mentioned anything about diecast racing. So and, no. and when you explain it to you, can you do it without any maths, please? Mm. <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't want much. Want just you, you don't want the calculus-based physics, then, Nick? No, 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 no. I, I just want to know how these how these gravity waves work. Jeff, mm. don't feel obligated to respond to that <laughs> question. Yeah, or maybe draw him some, you know. Or just send it like Nick at airlinepilotguy.com. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want a picture of an apple dropping on someone's head. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't do it for me. All right. And uh, how come we don't fly off? That's the other question I have. <laughs> well, sometimes yeah, you do, actually. <laughs> so, you'd think the centripetal force would all fly off the earth. I don't <laughs> understand how that works either. Hmm. That's kind of It has deep. to do with mass. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that that's cheating. That's just cheating. <laughs> saying maths, sure. Maths or back maths. me up here, Jeff. Back me up, not yeah. Jeff, Captain Jeff. I don't. Jeff, know. I'm getting Dr. confused. Jeff and <laughs> Doctor Jeff, <laughs> physics and yeah. I can't he, help you. He's like an ostrich. He just sticks his head in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. I take it back. Please send us a very detailed explanation. One that we'll all pretend to understand uh, uh, and then make fun of Captain Nick. We'd like audio. We'd like audio. Nothing written. Thank you. There you go. And and pictures we can, or video even. Okay. Uh, Paul writes in, um, hey, Jeff, hope you and your family are doing well. I came up with this. He sent this to me on a um, text message. And I thought, oh, this would be a good feedback for the show. He says, I came up with this question. Why should this sticker be on this box? And he sent us a picture of an Amazon parcel. And there's a label on the box that says magnetized material do not ship by air. I can see lithium ion batteries, but magnetic. I guess I could see if it's near a compass. What do you say? And I don't, I'm not really sure. I've got the answer. You do? Okay. I do. So because of their ability or ability to interfere with navigation and electronic equipment on planes, many industrial magnets, magnetic assemblies, and strong rare earth magnets cannot be shipped via air. Um, they are classified as dangerous goods uh, if not properly packed to block their magnetism. Um, and additionally, many carriers will not accept magnets for air shipments. So um, they can be properly packaged 
for carriage by aircraft, any package which has a magnetic field of more than 0.0052 Gauss, which I think is one ten thousandth of a Tesla, if I remember right. Um, That'd be a very, very tiny 15, Tesla. Cannot have, so it has to be less than that as measured from 15 feet from any surface of the package. And it has to be secured in such a way that the, whatever the object is, is not going to move around uh, and potentially shift that during transport. If the magnetic or if the maximum field strength observed at seven feet is less than 0, 0.002 Gauss, uh, it is not restricted. So there you go. I was going to say the same thing. Those are IATA rules and the FAA. Um. I we used to have no restrictions at all about carrying magnetic material uh, and now I'm wondering whether that was right or not <laughs> really but uh, obviously uh, they're talking about the, the not very magnetic material unlike something no they're with, talking about industrial magnets I'm just wondering yeah, what Paul uh, what Paul is ordering, what he's going to use. He works at a nuclear yeah, power what? plant. <laughs> oh. uh, hmm. I mean, I'm assuming that uh, since not many aircraft have got um, magnetic um, sensors anywhere near the cargo bays, uh, you're pretty safe from that. Uh, I'm thinking if you you can induce electrical currents through magnets in the wiring around. But if them if it's not moving, then how does that work? Uh, so, oh, I'm I'm just scratching my head, going, okay, fair enough. If but I don't really don't really mm. see what exactly the problem is. I suppose it might be a problem for the cabin crew because they've got those big trolleys, and if they went over the <laughs> magnet halfway down <laughs> the aisle, the trolley would like stop, and they, they wouldn't flip over, and it. all the brakes would go everywhere. <laughs> yeah. That would be Imagine dreadful, if it had it? like the opposite polarity, it would like push it up towards the, <laughs> <Whoa>! the ceiling. <laughs> now you're being silly. What me? Never. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. no. I'm just I'm just trying to imagine what they, when they've got to secure the cabin for landing. Uh, you know, they get down there and oh, can't move the trolley. Uh, <laughs> it ain't going well, anywhere. Sounds secured then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Through the problem. Uh, good secured. point. Yeah, good point. Wes. good. Well, mate. Wow. This this that's uh, why you're a doctor. The show Gravity and Magnetism. It's very, very yes. sciencey. <laughs> very. Um, I guess we should. Not. Yes. I think we have about 20 minutes remaining, so we can keep going. Um, let's do this. Uh, number 14. Uh, Jeffrey, not Dr. Jeffrey, but uh, just Jeffrey. Uh, I've attached an article which talks about a. Cutter or Qatar Airways pilot who's lost their job and was then given a massive training bill. I didn't have any particular question. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the subject. Um, if any of you fine folks are ever in Grand Rapids, I was supposed to be, but I guess I'm not going to be. Let's meet up for a beer after COVID passes, of course. Oh, okay. Well, maybe post COVID we can do that. Cheers, Jeffrey. Um, so the article here that he points to from viewfromthewing.com, which I think is an aviation blog, uh, Cutter Airways firing pilots and sending them a bill by Gary Leff on May 9th. There's no question that airlines are going to be smaller for a while, and they've been in the recent past. Oh, no. Smaller for a while than they've been in the recent past. 
While there is some talk about taking it in until 2023 for air travel to fully recover from the coronavirus panic or pandemic, well, I guess panic could work too. I have to think that 2022 will be largely back to normal. If we don't make hope for progress against the virus, it will have spread enough with enough retained immunity that continued spread won't be nearly so efficient. And by the way, we should have much better treatments, if not vaccinations. Uh, Nonetheless, until the Uh, Until then, airlines will need fewer planes and fewer employees. What was an acute worldwide pilot shortage quickly turns into a surplus. While United plans for 30% layoffs and American Airlines offers generous early retirement packages, Qatar Airways is apparently ahead of the curve. While the situation surrounding one pilot's dismissal is unclear, they shared the note they report receiving from their airline. Okay, that's a that's an important sentence right there. While the situation surrounding one pilot's dismissal is unclear. Okay, well, continue. Cutter Airways terminated them effective immediately and is paying seven days of severance in lieu of notice. It was uh, if that was the end of the story, it would be unfortunate. But part of the grim reality that aviation and the world um, and the world are facing today. Wait a minute. If that was the end of the story, it would be unfortunate. But part of the grim reality that aviation and the world are facing today. That doesn't sound like it. Kind of a fragment of a thought there. Yeah. Okay. However, that wasn't the end. Four and a half years ago, this pilot entered into an agreement with the airline that amounted to indentured servitude. They'd continue. That's kind of extreme. They'd continue flying in exchange for training. And if they were no longer employed as a pilot by the airline, They'd have to make repayment towards their their training costs. Cutter Airways fired this pilot, have them seven days of severance, and presented them with a bill for $162,343 at current exchange rates. Here's the letter. And there's a, a photo of the letter, uh, supposedly, allegedly, from Qatar. And basically it says, Dear Ms. Al-Hale, uh, end of employment. We regret to inform you that the, your services with the company are no longer required. According, accordingly, your last working day with the company is the close of work on 7 May 2020. However, you will be paid seven-day salary in lieu of notice period as per your contractual terms. Furthermore, please refer to the scholarship program agreement dated 31 October 2013 signed by you in recognition of the expenses being undertaken by the company for providing the commercial pilot training. You are, you are required to pay the company a sum of Cutter 591091 So I guess that equates to about 165000 $170,000 U.S. Dollars before the amount in compensation for the costs and expenses incurred by the company for the scholarship program agreement. Uh, we take this opportunity to remind you that you remain subject to certain obligations under the company's rules and regulations following your ending of employment. The company reserves the right to re, uh, invoke disciplinary procedures in the event of non-adherence towards operational duties, policies, and procedures. In other words, we're going to throw you in jail and maybe behead you. Um, just kidding. That's my own comment. Kindly arrange to complete the enclosed clearance from on your work last working day and submit to HR, ooh, HR separation <laughs> section without any delay for the settlement of your final dues. Okay. So, um, Basically, and this is not unusual. There are a lot of airlines out there that when you're hired by them, you sign an agreement, a contract that basically says that if for whatever reason you can't fulfill you know, the, the obligation of flying a certain time, 
uh, for them, then you kind of have to pay back uh, the money that they've spent on your training. So this contract sounds a little odd, though, because the airline can have it both ways. It's not that the the employee was terminated for cause or has left voluntarily and they need their funds repaid. They're actually letting the employee go because of, of staffing requirements. Am I understanding all this correctly? Yeah, but I there was somebody I was talking to, and I don't remember who it was. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't mention who it was, but they know something about mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. person who never really finished their training and was basically working in the office. I mean, I have a lot of questions here because $162,343 equivalent um, for a contract that was signed back in 2013 mm-hmm. is the amount still being due. Seems like a awful large sum as though they weren't uh, actively paying it off or primarily paying towards like interest instead of principal somehow. Well, I don't think they were required to pay it, but they were required to fly. Well, no, a they were required amount. to work a certain amount. So and if I think because this, to... I heard that this person wasn't actually flying, that makes but they were like sense, working though. in a non-flying capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically the agreement wasn't satisfied because the agreement was that you were going to fly as a pilot. For, I, again, I don't know. I don't know really any of the details about this. So, because these these kinds of contracts aren't terribly uncommon, but my understanding, at least for the industry that that I'm in and, and other similar industries, is that um, you know basically you are required to put in this the amount of work that will equal the amount of um, training costs that they've agreed to cover for you. Um, however, if you voluntarily leave before that time, or if you're terminated for cause, you have to pay that. Uh, money back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know of too many contracts that say if, hey, if we go out of business or have to downsize or you're let go because of something on our end, that you will still be required for all of that cost, at least not the full amount, but perhaps I'm wrong there. Uh, John in our chat room says there are questions about this and that they were let go for a cause. And then that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. I think there's more to the story than. Yeah, I think there's some holes here. We're hearing. Uh, you would you would think that you would Normally, hear more of these um, kind of stories. This, some, uh, this sounds like the complete cost of all training. Normally, mm-hmm. this sum would reduce uh, as you're with the company over the mm-hmm. years. Uh, and um, if this person uh, was no longer being trained or had failed and given another job, then I'm not too sure what the situation was there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm, and the fact this is a one-off. Uh, I've I've heard of, obviously, of people who fail their training and then are presented a training bill because they failed to make the mark. And uh, it's yep. one of the things you have to be really careful of when you enter into one of these contracts with the company to find out what the penalties are if you don't make the grade or if you, your life situation changes and you need to pull out what you're um, due, as well as um, contracts which, having achieved your position, uh, that prevents you from leaving that company for a set period. Otherwise, mm. you then have to pay money back because you're working there um, and part of your wage is often offset to cover the, your training costs. So if you leave and move to another company, you've got your well, the qualifications and you'll be paid at the full rate for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a temptation to do that. Uh, I know of a number of com- companies in the UK that used to do that and – to my knowledge, the guys who did actually leave before their period was up, they never actively pursued them. 
But mm. uh, in the Middle East, I've also heard that they have some very hard-nosed contracts, and it, it can be a real problem if uh, you end up falling foul of your training or something. So bottom line, make sure you read all of that fine print if you're considering uh, an option like this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because where are you going to find $175,000 just like that? Whoa, that's, uh, that's tough. Uh, just give me a call. I got some for you. Good man. Hey, Jeff, Good can man. I borrow $170,000, please? Not you, just this person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, it, if you want. I can, I can Anyone but HR, Steph, would have been fine. <laughs> Something tells me you don't really need to borrow that money. I'll make it. I'll be okay. Just barely. <laughs> I figured. Yeah. We're not worried about you. Uh, 15. By the way, uh, yep. I, I'm hoping this blog had the permission of this lady to put her name, leave her name uh, open on the letter, because I think that's, that's probably not the wisest thing to do, was to publish this letter with her name still sitting there. Yeah. That got published to Instagram. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm wondering if, yeah, I, I would imagine that she must have said, "Yeah, go ahead and keep my name in there." Well, I hope I hope that was the case. I hope so too. Looks like there's two different, you know, low alt, low, low altitude. Looks like the Instagram um, ID or uh, account that this was, and then the actual uh, blog itself was viewed from the wing. So these are two different blogs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I hope so too. I hope that. She was okay with us of revealing her name. Well, somehow that letter got out there in the public. Uh, anyway, yep. if it was a private correspondence, then presumably the person it was addressed to had something to do with that. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Okay. You end up messaging it to a friend going, what do you think of this? Look what they've just said. And then you've got oh, to make Instagram. sure your friend doesn't. Uh, <laughs> That's one of those things. Any anything you put on the internet, even if it's an email, like a private email, just assume that it's going to be out there on the net somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You never know. Ah, that's our public service announcement for show four twenty five. And read the fine print. Read the fine print. I can't anymore. My glasses aren't good. Well, enough. get some better glasses or something. Have somebody else read it for you. Have your lawyer. I wouldn't read trust it. them. <laughs> especially a lawyer right? <laughs> i'm just kidding i love lawyers um jj not pittsburgh writes in how's everybody going uh, or hey everybody how's it going this one's for captain nick how do u.s air force fighter squadrons differ from raf squadrons tactically and culturally i would think that they would be similar since our two countries have fought alongside each other for as long as air combat has been around thanks guys jj not Pittsburgh. So, Nick, what say you about uh, how do Air Force, or I guess he means just like U.S. military fighter squadrons differ from Royal Air Force squadrons? Or this this question is full of pitfalls, isn't it? Because <laughs> really I can is. dig myself I'm a glad real hole here. <laughs> um, I no, go have, ahead. We're listening. <laughs> I have never spent a significant amount of time. Uh, on a USAF squadron, so I don't know. The only time we used to bump into them was obviously when we did something combined like uh, um, an ACMI uh, range sortie, Dechi Bomano, those kind of things, where we would have uh, lots of NATO air forces um, fighting each other. And uh, 
you know, uh, they they were just like everyone else. Uh, the the I think we were possibly less rule bound. Uh, they had some definite rules they wanted to follow, and we used to yawn a little bit when we had to do the same safety brief every trip. Blah blah <laughs> blah blah blah. Whereas yeah. we tended to make a point of uh, emphasizing the d- things that were different on this trip, not cover it every time. So it became Mike mouth music. Um, but the way we flew um, and the type of pilots we had, they're all much of a much use. The Americans always had better gear than us. So that made it easier for them to win. So that wasn't fair. Um, but uh, and their, their, the quality of their pilots ranged from absolutely fantastic to um, a little average. We tended to sit a bit in the middle of that. So we weren't quite as fantastic. We weren't quite as average. Um, and I think that's mainly down to the size of the Air Forces. So the Royal Air Force was much smaller and uh, could, to a certain extent, cherry-pick a little uh, a little more, whereas a lot of cockpits in the United States to fill. Uh, so you had a bigger band of ability i think uh but generally speaking made up for the fact that the technology they had on that you know to fly was just fabulous so the the aircraft they had to fly were you know just top notch very lucky men when it came to uh, socializing oh i don't know uh, we might have been a little more wild perhaps <laughs> not as wild as the marines uh <laughs> about on par with the navy i would say uh, and the Air Force were a little more gentlemanly. Mm. Uh, yeah. That, that's, and, that's, and that's very general. And don't forget my experience is, is 30, 40 years out of date. So I wouldn't put too much in into that. Nick and I talked about this um, a few days ago. We were talking about this uh, or a couple of days ago, whatever. And uh, we were in the um, Air Force about the same time. Um, I was in, pretty much just in the 80s. You spent more time in the in the military than I did. Um, but, and again, I wasn't in a fighter squadron, but I was, I, I was exposed a little bit to that in the, uh, air training command. And I have a lot of friends that were, uh, in the, uh, TAC world. And, uh, I, I'd say everything you said is exactly the way I would have probably uh, described it. So well done. There you go. As long as I haven't upset too many people. Didn't upset me. And uh, we were saying that <laughs> only the Marines, the Navy. Oh no, the Marines. Were, the Marines were just animals. I don't care. Yeah. Um, so you know, I was mentioning to, to Nick when I first started in the Air Force in the early '80s. I mean, we were drinking like crazy. I mean, the, the whole culture was like, you know, every every day ended with and sometimes began at the officers' club. Um, yeah, and the vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> it was like. It was it was just part of the culture, and then uh, as things got into the mid '80s, things started like tapering off a little bit. The uh, the our culture here in the U.S., maybe around the world, started to really emphasize and and buckle down on uh, like drunk driving and that kind of thing, which is a terrible thing. Uh, and the whole so, say no to drugs era. Yeah, and and they had that's when they started setting up. The last couple of years, I was in the military. They were setting up those barriers uh, so that if you were going to go off base. After spending some time in the uh, officers club, you had to go through these barriers, you know, like a, a pylons you had to drive through just to make sure that you were okay to leave the base. So, uh, yeah, things, things, ad- I definitely saw um, a dramatic change from the time that I started in the Air Force to the time I left. 
And uh, so, and then, you know, I don't know how long ago it was, but we, they, they even eliminated officers clubs. I think they turned them into joint um, non-commissioned officers and officers clubs. And they were, they're nothing like um, almost, they're almost like rec halls now or something. They're not like the uh, officers clubs of old, sadly. Yeah. That, that's a shame. You do a, a lot of finding out about your mates and a lot of camaraderie is built inside uh you know the officer's mess or whatever and a um, lot of stupid things done too i have a lot of stories i have a lot of stories i have a scar on i my might point out leg. that <laughs> one of the bases i was at um after a really severe uh, vehicle i could still get on my motorcycle and drive ride home because i would go onto the airfield and down the uh perry track and then to the end of the airfield and across the grass and then through a little gate onto a golf course and then drive through the golf course until I got to my house. And uh, that so you were never I'm... a danger to anyone else on the road. <laughs> exactly right. Absolutely. Now, and then I park my motorcycle and my and go to bed. And my wife would always come down in the morning and she would try and work out how drunk I'd been by seeing how much sand there was caked into the <laughs> motorcycle, by how many times I've fallen yeah, off it into a bunker or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is I was kicked out of two officers clubs, and, and one of those I was actually officially banned from. <laughs> so, oh, nice wow. job. Yeah. Hey, Thank you. That takes some yeah. doing. Well, you know, I got talent. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Good man. to be young. Good man. Yeah, not really. But anyway. <sighs> That's going to be it for today's show. We're going to save the last two here in the folder for um, the next show. That's uh, Tomas uh, teaching flying during the epidemic or the epidemic, uh, the pandemic. The appendectomy. The epidemic. <laughs> the epidemic. epidemic. <laughs> Something that has some of those letters in it, many of the same. And Tom, uh, he has a he, he sends some opinion and advice regarding uh, loans for training, and uh, so. Good stuff. We'll uh, save for the next show. And then hopefully Rick will be back with us and Dana as well. Uh, but Rick, uh, we saved a couple for for him to kind of chime in. And yeah, that's it. So uh, if you are new to the show, again, we uh, offer our apologies uh, for wasting your time these last three hours. Uh, but we hope and you enjoy And for the next, it. you know, however many years you <laughs> yeah. are stuck listening to us. And if, of course, if you, if you catch the syndrome... Which is uh, the APG syndrome. APG syndrome. There's a isn't there APG a APG um, syndrome? Is there a vaccine for that now? Uh, no, well, there's a treatment you, of sorts. Are you talking about go around Cillin? Go around Cillin. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think I can find that. Sure. Easy for everything nowadays. Yeah. Uh, where would that be here? That would be over here. And uh, I, I know that if I just push the keyboard letter G, I'm going to get something entirely different. So um, <laughs> you can know go. Yeah, that's exactly oh, what. Going green. Well, here, let me see what happens. We're going, going green. green. Uh, <laughs> Could have been this, but it isn't. Uh, where, why can't I find too the, many uh, things in aviation beginning with G? I know it's, it's crazy. Uh, G suits, uh, gear, G lock gear. Um, I can't see it. Sorry. I'm looking all over the place. Oh, well, we'll play that on the next show. How about 
And so anyway, if you're, if you're new to the show and you want to learn more about it, we have a great website, airlinepilotguide.com, where I think we can put up on the uh, screen. Uh, let's see under brand and uh, there we go. Boom. Looks like that. Although it's going to have newer stuff on it uh, where we have information about the APG crew, the community, we have the community calendar, we have a way for you to contact us, send us some audio feedback via SpeakPipe. Uh, we have a, um, you may be watching it via the website right now, APG on YouTube. Um, we have a Plain Tales dedicated uh, page for those wonderful Plain Tales where Nick puts in uh, additional information, photos, that kind of thing that go along with his wonderful Plain Tales uh, podcast and uh, and much more. So. Uh, the APG library, Tiffany, our librarian uh, manages that, manages that. So check that out again, APG airline pilot guy. I wish it was easy as APG.com, but couldn't get that one airline pilot guy.com. And we're also on the social media or what I like to call social meds. We are on the social meds. You can head over to twitter.com where we are at APG crew. Uh, it's a good place to find out notifications about when the show will be recorded live so you can join us in the chat room and a good way to keep track of the changes that we make to the schedule, uh, sometimes even last minute, such as today. And we appreciate everyone for finding their way uh, to our later showtime today. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, lots of good community interaction going on there. And uh, Instagram at APG crew. Sometimes I post some pictures there. Excellent. And we are also on Slack. Let's see if uh, I can turn up the hidden microphone in the restroom here. Hello? Hello? It's time for Slack. Can you come over here? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Well, just make sure you use a towel. All right, here he is. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And um, really not sure exactly why. He's always in uh, the restroom, bathroom, lavatory, where I, wherever I am in the world. But I do appreciate that. He, I mean, it's uh, convenient. It is convenient. This Slack announcement. Then I don't have to say anything. Anywho, um, that's about it. Um, anything else we should add? Oh, we have to thank our uh, control room yep. producer Thanks, director, Miss Liz Thank Piper is. in uh, Toronto, Ontario. So thank you uh, for all your help and direction and production uh, behind the scenes, Liz. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. And one Bye. more cheers to Captain Andy Anderson. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Cheers. So Farewell. Andy cheers, Andy. Fly west safely. Bye, everybody. Good day.
used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly away 